Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On tonight's episode, I interview Sean St. Hart. Sean is a philosophical sociologist that specializes in social change and transformation. He is the co-founder of Charitable Humans, a non-profit committed to meaningful and comprehensive societal reform. He is also behind the independent media platform Citizen.am, a radio station dedicated to amplifying progressive and socialist voices. Sean is also the host of his own podcast, Coup Save America, and I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever! Sean St. Hart, a philosophical sociologist who also started a charitable organization, Charitable Humans, as well as a media platform for progressive, um, I guess, right, or sorry, left wing talk, for progressive, uh, for progressive talk, uh, uh, citizens.am. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Sean St. Hart. Welcome. Uh, welcome here, too. Um, very glad to have you. Uh have this opportunity to be on your show. So you, you started a right-wing uh, media platform. You guys got like Rush Limbaugh on there. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. You, got, you guys are Donald big. Uh, what's it? It's a kind of a MAGA theme on there? Or? <laughs> yeah, got Donald Trump, everything. <laughs> I mean, he won the election, right? He won the, uh, he won the 2020 election. Isn't that right? For life. So what do you think about, what do you think about Donald Trump? And it's looking like it's setting up for a, um, of course, we're joking here. We're, Certainly, left wingers. Um, what are we? Uh, what are we seeing for twenty twenty four election? What do you, how do you see it shaping up? I listened to your podcast with Josh of the Pino podcast. You had talked about a little bit of the twenty twenty and the twenty sixteen election, and it looks like um, pretty. Looks like it's pretty likely we're going to see a rerun of the twenty twenty four election unless something happens. I guess unless some Republican candidate comes from out of nowhere. I guess. Yeah, no, I, I think we're looking at exactly as, as you said, uh, Biden versus Trump, which is a very sad state of affairs. Um, and at this point, I mean, a lot can change. I think that Donald Trump is going to win. It's neck and neck. It looks like it's a toss up. Yeah, um, yeah I, I don't know if I I think it's definitely a good chance. But um, yeah, I really hope we don't see another. I really don't want to see another four years of Trump. I definitely don't want to see another four years of Biden either. It's kind of a shame that we don't have anything better to to offer. Um, unfortunately, it seems like politics in the United States, um, the democracy uh, is very, very limited. In fact, uh, Princeton in 2014 said the United States is not a democracy. Uh, it's an oligarchy. If you don't or if you aren't in the top, you know, 25, 30 percent of income, uh, in this country, you have virtually no influence on the public policies and the politics and 
and all that kind of stuff that goes on in Washington. Um, what do you? How do you see the? How do you see the political system in the United States? What do you think about the duopoly and the two-party system? Uh, we kind of have the way I see it: a one-party uh, or a one-party state, the business party with two factions. What do you think about that? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think that the entire system is corrupt uh, beyond reform. And I mean, you know, we hear it, it. It really drives me crazy when I hear Democrats, you know, like Joe Biden, we're fighting for democracy. Uh, well, you're doing a horrible job of it. Um, picking the Green Party off the ballot, uh, opposing ranked choice vo- voting. Um, uh, I mean, even and I, I've gotten into to fights with people about about this. You know, their their argument is that uh, there's never been an incumbent that's you know had a debate during a primary. Okay, uh, don't you think that we ought to change that? Yeah, the way the way I see politics, um, I've done a lot of podcasts lately, getting a lot of ideas out there. So if you listen to me, anyone out there right now, you might be hearing some stuff over and over again. But it's kind of the way I feel. Um, I think politics should be about trying different things, you know. And sometimes um, these ideas might not work, but. Um, you know, it's worth learning and trying different things. We've got a lot of problem in the United States. I printed out a packet here, um, on my camera here. Yeah, it's obviously audio only, but we are on camera. Uh, a comprehensive assessment of America's infrastructure. Uh, we have here a C minus grade. Um, majority of infrastructure is failing or, or close to failing. Uh, I had a statistic on bridges. I mean, we've got a lot of, a lot of problems. The way I see the, um, you know, the Biden infrastructure plan, we're in desperate need of new infrastructure, but it's basically a corporate giveaway. I haven't studied it in detail. Let me read this statistic here. We got a lot of problems in the United States and yet we're not getting, we're not getting choices. We're not getting different choices. We're just getting recycled candidates. Someone like Joe Biden, who's made his living in Washington, even though um, public approval uh, of Congress is in the flirting with single digits or sometimes in the twenties, teens. Um, I saw that a couple months ago, uh, the Supreme Court uh, is at their lowest approval rating of all time after the student loan debacle. And yet, um, at a time when trust in public institutions and approval of, a pu- of public institutions are at or near all-time low, incumbents uh, in, in the United States Congress are winning elections at a high mm-hmm. 90s clip. And the way I see it, um, that means um, options aren't being presented to the electorate. And the fact that half there's a lot of dissidents in the country, obviously, when you look at the approval rating of these institutions. However, um, half the country doesn't even th- think it's worthwhile to vote because they know their vote's not going not gonna to matter much. So let me just read this statistic here about the major problems going on in the United States, our C-minus infrastructure. Um, right now, there are 42% of all United States bridges are 50 years or older. That's 46,154 bridges are considered structurally deficient or in, or are in poor condition. And that unfortunately means 178 million trips are taken across these structurally deficient bridges every single day. Wow. That's just, that's just one page of this. Very thick report. We got a lot of problems in the United States, and yet no one's stepping up to make any changes or solutions. Yeah, and you know, again, I totally agree. the The infrastructure that Joe Biden has put forth is a corporate handout, which is why we're not seeing any any action on it. Um, you know, we live in a, in a capitalistic pariah <laughs> system, and infrastructure. Um, I, I mean, th- those are just you know. 
they're necessities for for us, uh, but they're just incidental to to these corporate interests. I mean, look at corporations themselves. They very rarely invest in infrastructure that represents um, the needs of communities or you know anything that doesn't derive direct profits. So here's something I found in the report. Uh, the only um, the only infrastructure in this report that was graded at a B or higher, where you know we could talk about drinking waters, schools got a D minus. I mean, anywhere you want to go, it's a C or a D rating for our infrastructure, except our ports. Our ports, I think, got a B minus, and our railroads got a B. Those are both used for commerce. The majority of the United States railroads are owned privately. So it makes sense. Our our priorities in terms of infrastructure yeah. are supporting the commerce and the business. So we're using public tax dollars to essentially subsidize, um, you know, uh, industry and business and imports and exports or, you know, the railroad system, which is used to truck uh, goods across the country. Our railroad system certainly not like Europe. Uh, we don't have high-speed rail, and we don't have um, public transportation. These are mainly um, commercial railroads used to ship um, – you know, goods across the country for, for commerce, for the economy, and for the people that own the country. Um, so that's kind of where our priorities are. And it seems like we always have money for, of course, like war and the proxy war going on in Ukraine, which yeah. I, you know, Ukraine Ukrainians are victims. But unfortunately, instead of the United States using its political power to, uh, you know, negotiate peace and diplomacy, they are using the Ukrainians as cannon fodder. Uh, to weaken their biggest political and military enemy in Russia, they could care less about the Ukrainian people or that country. This is a, this is a power play against their you know biggest political rival uh, in Russia, and unfortunately, um, the Ukrainians are being victimized and their country is being destroyed. And they might they over time their you know the population is going to be decimated. Of course, if this if this war goes yeah. on long term, which it seems like there's no end in sight for it. Well, it, well, it goes to, you know, the it's amazing how many citizens support Ukraine and have no idea what this war is really about. They have no idea that we're in a proxy war with Russia. And by the way, we're also gearing up for war with uh, with China as well. A lot of provocations against China. How about Nancy Pelosi's trip to Thailand to rile up uh you know, whatever political animosity, uh, you know, this is a nuclear power. Um, all this tension between nuclear powers could certainly end a nuclear war and annihilation. That wouldn't be good. And yet, instead of working together, we're trying to, um, you know, provoke uh, China with, you know, military and naval engagements and operations and trainings in the South China Sea. Uh, I use this example in the past. What if China was doing naval operations in the San Francisco Bay? How, how do you think the uh, United States government would uh, would react to that? Oh, I think we would be very hospitable. I think we'd bring out uh, coffee and tea for them. <laughs> yeah, coffee, tea, and trinkets maybe, yeah. Yeah, we would probably be launching nukes at that point. Might, might be, yeah. And uh, I did a show on nuclear weapons, but we are a signer of the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty. Um, and all we would have to do is to take that seriously and stop the development of new nuclear missiles yep. and hopefully over time, you know, bring our nukes offline. But instead, we seem hell-bent on mutually assured destruction. What's your thoughts about proxy war, nuclear war, and nuclear proliferation generally? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm guessing you're in support of uh, no nuclear war. Is that is that yeah, am I going absolutely. am I going off a little? <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah. And you know, 
I, I also like to point out to people, the United States is the only country in the world that has ever used a nuclear weapon. Yep. And the, the myth that somehow we were justified or that we had to do that is completely false. Japan had already agreed to surrender before we dropped those bombs. Uh, Washington uh, decided that they weren't going to accept that surrender. Uh, they were using uh, Japan as an experiment. That was what that, that those nuclear bombs were human experiments to see what actual damage would take place. And so that's, if any country should not subjects. have nuclear weapons, it should be the United States. We should be the ones that are not allowed to have nuclear weapons. Um, what do you think about this? I threw this idea out there. I had a physicist on and asked, uh, asked some other uh, guests on my podcast. What do you think? So, like, the Nazi concentration guards, they were tried for war crimes and their role um, in the Holocaust. What do you think about um, the, the scientists that worked on the nuclear uh, development of nuclear bombs on the Manhattan Project being tried for war crimes? Surely they knew the death and destruction that the, this weapon would cause and... Um, I don't really see a way. The only thing I can think of is maybe we divert a, uh, an asteroid that's heading to Earth, and maybe in that way or that sense, nuclear weapons could be used for good. But outside of that, I don't. I don't see. I think nuclear. I think most technology is neutral, except for you know, there's some instances like a nuclear bomb where I think it's only bad. I think that once that was developed, the world was a much worse off place, and now the nuclear age. Uh, Europeans, their favorite sport for centuries, were slaughtering each other, and in 1945. Uh, they knew that they had to change that favorite sport, that favorite game, because that might have been the end of us all. But what do you think about, um, you know, the scientists that worked on the Manhattan Project? Should they be held as war criminals? Were they complicit in the development of this bomb? It's really they knew what they were doing at the time. Everyone seems to I'm, – I'm not necessarily saying that I believe this, but I, I kind of like asking the question because I haven't heard this asked before. Everyone said no so far. What do you think? Absolutely, yes. I, I think that the, that was a huge war. I mean <laughs> – they knew what did they think that was going to be used for peace i mean I, I, it was developed because you know there was the, the race against uh germany um but you know mm-hmm. germany was knocked out of the war before it was dropped and the war in the pacific was about who was going to control the asian economy you know i think the 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 state planners the the records were opened up um, and they had thought originally that there was going to be a tripolar world, um, depending on how World War II um, shaped, shaped, shook out. Um, Japan would kind of be the, the leader of the economy in, the, in Asia. Uh, Germany would take over um, Europe, and the United States would get everything else. But once Germany fell, the United States saw an opportunity to control the world. And, of course, you know the, the Cold War and, and Russia became... Uh, the biggest whatever threat or enemy or political rival, but of course uh, the United States was uh, much much more powerful, much more much wealthier. Uh, if you compare Russia to the United States, it's not a great comparison. Russia's economy is about the size of Brazil, so that's a little bit better comparison. Uh, and Brazil, of course, has been under the United States' sphere of influence for centuries. Um, you know, a, a poor but developing country. Um, you know, finally getting outside of the American shadows. Um, but uh, what, do you, what do you think, um, you know, just generally about, you know, I, the war in the Pacific? I mean, yeah, I agree. We didn't have to um, we didn't have to drop that bomb. Um, it was about power and it was mm-hmm. about, you know, maintaining control of the Asian economy. But, you know, basically making Japan, um, you know, a lieutenant under the United States. And that's kind of how it's been. I mean, we got bases in Japan and the people in Okinawa uh, desperately would like us to leave. Um 
So yeah, it's kind of way the way I see the war in the Pacific. Though was a, kind of a war, a campaign of aggression. There was no need. The, Japan was not. Um, Japan was not um, threatening U.S. mainland, and in fact, uh, Hawaii was still a colony at the time, which was stolen at gunpoint. So yeah. they never even attacked, um, you know, the United States mainland. So the entire war of the Pacific, war in the Pacific, as I see it, was a war of aggression to uh, ensure and maintain control over Asian, you know, over Asian political system and the economy. Well, I, I once again, you know, you look at the precipice for the war, which was uh, Pearl Harbor. Um, the United States had been provoking uh, yep. Japan uh, for a long time, trying to get them to do something because they wanted to go to war in Japan and they needed Japan to attack. They originally thought it was going to happen in San Francisco, um, but it turned out that uh, it was Pearl Harbor. So they didn't necessarily plan Pearl Harbor, but they certainly provoked China through all sorts of economic sanctions, uh, outright aggression, hostilities. And you said um, Japan. I mean, you said China, but you mean Japan, right? Japan. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. yeah, Japan. Yeah, I'm <laughs> confusing history no, with present tense. <laughs> <laughs> you're good. You're good. Um, so yeah, it, I don't think that you can. Aside from maybe the Revolutionary War, there's never been a war that the United States has been. And by the way, we as a country have been at war for over ninety percent of the time that we've existed. Yeah, that's true. Very and, friendly country. Each of those wars has been about imperialism, colonialism, uh, capitalist ex- expansion, economic control, and that is all it is with Russia and China right now. China is is you know an economic foe, but again, who's to blame for that? <laughs> I mean, we ship all of the jobs and manu- you know manufacturing jobs over overseas. Um, I didn't ship it, you know, and, and the people of. The, right, the, right. The people of the Rust Belt didn't ship it. It was the it was the people that owned the country. These these corporate executives and and whatnot that they would rather. Uh, there's no. So I talked about this on a podcast. There's no. Uh, you know, Nike makes shoes in Thailand, paying people pennies a day. Yep. There's no te- shoe technology or resources that are better there than than here in the United States. The reason that they shipped production there or offshored it is so they can exploit um, a highly exploited working class there with uh, with a lot less stringent labor laws so that they don't have to pay, to quote some of the business presses, uh, presses the pampered Western workers. That's the that's the system of globalization. It's a they call it globalization, but it's a very specific kind of globalization where, um, you know, a small percentage, uh, the maybe one percent of the population or even a fraction of one percent are making the decisions to ship these jobs. There's there's tons of people that want to work, you know, here in the United States. It wasn't their choice. It was taken away from them. Uh, and, and the reason it was taken away from them. Um, is to maximize profits and again exploit a uh, highly exploited uh, population uh, of, of workers in the global south. It's, it was done because of greed. You know, you you mentioned earlier um, crimes against humanity. Um, what you just described is a crime against humanity. What Nike is doing, these companies that are hiring the slave labor, uh, let's just call it what it is. It's slavery. The conditions in which these factory workers are uh, exposed to um, is unhealthy and (laughs) dangerous. Um, That, to me, is a crime against humanity, and it's being done for 
profit. That to me is a crime against humanity. So, and it's, it's the system. I mean, I think, I think Western law, um, I think it's written into Western law that these corporations have to ensure that profits are maximized. I think they're obligated by law. So, you know, we could change the CEO and the executive team at Nike, but probably the next group of people get in there, they're going to do the same thing. Otherwise they're going to be out of a job. Right. So even if we change some faces around and, and, uh, management around or even you know completely replace everyone at the nike corporation um you know if we get people out of the wharton business school or whatever the mit sloan business school or wherever they're probably going to keep doing the same kind of stuff so what we have to do is uh change the system and that's not going to be easy unfortunately but it's the only way i see us saving this this planet with finite resources we can't um continue an economic system that is based on greed and self-interest and constant and perpetual growth on a planet that's being decimated with finite resources. Yeah. And, and that's what people don't seem to understand. Um, you know, as a sociologist, I like to always go back to the hunter gatherer days in comparison to where we are today. Primitive communism. I've, I've heard someone talk about that before. I find that an interesting common uh, concept, primitive communism, when we all kind of lived in these little self-sufficient yes. communes. I, I like that idea. Um, that was sustainable for the planet and for the human race. Uh, it was the <laughs> the big mistake, some scientists argue, and I would be one to go along with this, uh, is, is the biggest mistake that we made was the shift from hunter-gatherer to these settlements that, that were dependent upon agriculture. That's, that's where humanity really verged off, off the trail. Um, because think about it for, for a moment, you, in, in the traditional hunter gatherer societies, you didn't have a hierarchy of power. Everyone was equal. Uh, women were equal. I mean, child rearing was done by the entire tribe, the entire group, um, resources were shared there. There wasn't really a power structure in place. The power structure didn't come in until we moved to these permanent settlements and did agriculture because what do you need with agriculture i've read a little bit on this like um the larger the group gets the more there right. tends to become a hierarchy i think there's like some magic number like i don't know 20 20 something or whatever i've read some stuff on it i don't know if that's true or not but um do you think that you know uh do you think like is is is, is the society grows and it gets larger there it's it, there's a more risk for you know, some group, some people in a group to be put above others in, in, in terms of hierarchy and domination and that kind of stuff. Is, is that you think that's fair? I don't. I think that's dependent upon the system. Um, so going back to the agricultural example, the, the problem was you have this distribution of labor. I mean, in, in a hunter gatherer society, people were shared on, in the in the tasks. With agriculture, you had different roles. You had different expertise that had to come in. And so you had this division of labor for the first time in human history. And that's where you had the haves and the have-nots. Because the question came to be, well, if I'm now, quote-unquote, the owner of this land or the one overseeing this or the one in the management position, then I'm entitled to more than the people that are just picking the crops or planting seeds or or whatever they're they're jobs happen to be and then you get into this idea of 
property ownership came to emerge around that time, this idea that you own property. And so what do you need when you own property? Well, you it, anyone can say they own anything. I can say I own the White House, right? But the question is, well, that doesn't mean anything unless you have a system in place to enforce that. And so that's where the idea of these organized governments came into being. And agriculture allowed you know, many more people in it to be part of a group because they were growing mass amounts of food. But you don't take into account the sustainability of that uh, on natural resources. I mean, you're 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 taking down trees. You're um, you know, you've got soil erosion to deal with. So that's really, I think, was sort of the start was the move to agricultural and the 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 growth of society from that point within that system. It's really about distribution of labor. That's that's some Adam Smith stuff, distribution of labor. I like that. I was looking up a quote when you were talking. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, I'm a philosopher. At least that's kind of how I approach my show. Uh, I want to read this. is just gave me the great opportunity to read the uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau quote, one of my favorite philosophers. Um, very complex individual. His philosophy was very complex, but kind of planted the seeds for anarchist uh, theory, which I, I identify as anarchist, and maybe we can get into kind of your uh, political philosophies and whatnot. But uh, here's Jean-Jacques Rousseau on property. The first man, and of course, at those times, that's the only people that had power. Uh, this is talking now, I think we're in the 1700s here, or late 1600s. The first man who, having enclosed a piece of ground, bethought himself of saying, this is mine, and found people simple enough, simple enough to believe him, was the real founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, murder... From how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling up that ditch or crying to his fellows? Beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if once forget that the fruits of earth belong to all of us and the earth itself to nobody. Pretty good, yeah. huh? That's an amazing quote. Um, he has a way with words, man. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he's a, he's a RIP. He was a legend, really good philosopher. Yeah, and we've lost philosophy in our society. We don't, um, we don't even, we're trained not even to, to think. Here's a narrative, accept the narrative, don't think about it, uh, just go along with it because we know, you know, we know what we know and you don't know what we know. So therefore the position of knowledge uh, <laughs> has been sort of, it's been propagandized. What is, I'm a philosopher, mind you. What is knowledge? How do you know? How do you know when you've attained it? This is what me and Sean uh, on the Pino podcast. This is what we uh, or Josh. I'm sorry. This is what me and Josh talked about uh, knowledge and just kind of back and forth, uh, going back and forth about this kind of stuff. But what is knowledge? What is wisdom? How do you know you found it? Well, I don't think you ever find it. Um, knowledge is simply human experience attained whether that's been handed down to you or whether you've experienced that yourself. Um, that, that goes to knowledge is often confused with truth in that, uh, you know, for, for instance, Donald Trump w would almost make a great philosopher in a certain sense, because <laughs> I can't wait to hear this. Let's hear it. One of you know, remember when the whole alternative facts came to be? Oh yeah. Yeah. I love saying, you know, if you don't agree with something, you can just be like, that's fake news. And then all of a sudden it goes away. Yeah, argument's over. <laughs> you know? But that is 
a fundamental truth. What is a fact? Some people believe that the earth is flat, right? To them, that is a fact and that is their knowledge base. That's, that's, and you don't change people's opinions with facts. Facts are virtually meaningless. Everybody reacts to emotions, how something made you feel, how something makes you feel. Um, so when we talk about truth and facts, we've, we've come to, once again, assign ownership to these, like we're, certain institutions, the news media, um, education, what have you. Um, these are all things that, that, that are claiming ownership of knowledge, but knowledge in, in essence is human experience that's either lived or acquired. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it went back originally to, I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think about where we came from. I mean, we came from these hunter gatherer societies to the invention of electricity. We, we've, we've launched spacecraft, you know, to the moon, um, so it, and some, the capitalists want to take credit for all that stuff. What do you say about that? Absolutely bullshit. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Uh, human innovation, if anything, capitalism has eroded. In spite of, right? We made these uh, yes. advancements in spite of capitalism, in spite of these leeches trying to uh, monetize and maximize profits uh, for, uh, on the on the backs of workers and some very smart uh, individuals and in their whatever in, inventions and novel you know novel theories and ideas. Yeah, no, and again, think about it. If people are occupied working just to to squeak by a living, they're not innovating. The only people that innovate are the people that already have the wealth and the resources. And there are, yes, there are exceptions to this rule, but more often than not, uh, even with those exceptions, mind you, it requires resources. And if you don't have those resources, if you don't have the wealth, if you don't have the connections and the power, it really doesn't matter. Uh, but most of all, you don't have the time because you're working day and night just trying to make a living. So how, how are you going to innovate? So I think innovation has been stifled, frankly. But they want to—they want to keep us down. Uh, they want to make yeah. sure that we're tired. They want to make sure that we're on the verge of poverty. They want to maximize our time, monopolize our time. The eight-hour workday was won at the turn of the 20th century, um, but working hours are on the rise again. You know, especially with like emails and phone calls, we can always potentially be on the clock. Hey, can you do something for me? Can you log into the system yeah. and do X, Y, Z? You know, so the eight-hour workday was won, and I'm. From uh, the Rust Belt, uh, the homestead strikes, uh, the workers, I think they were working six days a week, uh, 12-hour days for a couple bucks a week uh, in pay. And they eventually said, you know what, we had enough. Uh, and the unions kind of um, organized these workers. And, you know, unions can certainly be corrupt, too. I, I want workers to own and control the means of production, although unions are a nice step, a nice step in the right direction in this one-sided class war. Um, but the Pinkertons came in and Carnegie and Frick uh, and essentially um, murdered these people in cold blood who were all they were asking for is a living wage. And they wanted weekends and they wanted a shorter work day and they wanted safety standards, you know, and that's all pretty reasonable things. Um, and we have those today. We have these, you know, 
we have safer workplaces and we have OSHA, even though the Republicans want to tear that down, um, you know, and, and we have weekends and holidays and the eight hour workday. They certainly can't work us 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. But if they could, they would, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the reason that we have some of these benefits like the eight hour day and benefits and time off is because of people that fought up and, and stood up, stood up to the robber barons and died in cold blood, like at the homestead uh, homestead strikes. Um, so we have a lot better life, you know, than the, than the workers did at the at the at the twentieth turn of the twentieth century. But um, you know, they they're always trying to fight back the right and the establishment. Um, so we're at a lot better place now. So we're you know we're kind of standing on the on the on the shoulders of giants and on the shoulders of, and on the backs of workers that came before us. So we have, we have them to thank where we are right now. Absolutely. Okay. So I do want to go back on something you had said about the American um, political system and, and, it, and it's corrupt and surely it is. I, I would say that the United States is a oligarchy or yep. a plutocracy or even a kleptocracy, um, which is basically, I think, government by the rich for the rich, and you know, seeds and the quagmire of just just complete corruption and money basically buys whatever you want and need. But um, let me just kind of talk about, and I talked about this last night with Pat the Burner, um, the framework for the United States government. Um, let's go to the framer of the Constitution, James Madison. So I, I think it's a lot deeper than than just simply corruption. I think it's as how the system was designed. Yeah. It was designed by the rich for the rich. So the framer of the Constitution, James Madison, said that the role of government should be to, quote, protect the opulent minority from the majority. Uh, and he did that by limiting um, democracy. Democracy would be, you know, majority rules, but uh, he did it very cleverly. Uh, slaves were three-fifths uh, a person, and they also couldn't vote. It also gave That also gave... Uh, the southern, the south, um, much more voting power because they, they, the, the slaves counted towards the population and and the influence of Congress. But yet, um, you know, these rich white property owners voted for their slaves, and I'm sure the the interests of the rich white property owners and slaves were much different. Um, certainly, just a, just a bit, <laughs> just a bit. So that is the framer of the Constitution and and a founding father and one of the presidents. And now let's go to the Supreme Court. John Jay, direct quote. Those who own the country ought to govern it. This is the first Supreme Court justice. And now let's just go to kind of how the Senate was set up. Um, basically, the Senate, there's two houses of government. Um, the House of Representatives, which was a little bit more you know, democratic and open to um, progressive ideals, you know, like maybe slavery and people shouldn't own, you know, people and uh, other people. And, you know, took um, almost 100 years to finally wipe that off the books. Um, but, you know, in, in general, the Senate was set up... Um, is, is the power of the of the United States, the, the lawmaking branch, um, the legislation branch, and at least, you know, if any progressive legislation got through the first house, the Senate would strike it down. It's kind of how it's designed today. It does, it's the same, yeah. same kind of thing. Um, and the, the Senate was basically um, hand-chosen um, by elites uh, because at the early days of the Senate, uh, there were not elections. Um, they were appointed just like the Supreme Court is still appointed today, which I find ridiculous. Of course, the Supreme Court is partisan, although the Democratic judges aren't much better. They're, they're both corporately influenced judges that think that speech is money and, uh, you know, Citizens United and, and give the corporations um, the power of immortal, um, all-powerful people. I don't think corporations or groups of people should have rights. I think people should have rights. 
Um, but, uh, yeah, basically the wealth of the nation was the Senate at the time of its founding. They were appointed, and they were chosen to be sympathetic to property owners at the time. Uh, and that was rich white males, not women. And I believe they had to have a certain uh, religious sect, too. So that's the seeds of American democracy, and I'll say that in quotes. Uh, not much of democracy in the 1700s if you were a woman, you know, of course. Yeah. Not much of a democracy if you were a Native American or an indigenous individual. Um, you're be probably being exterminated. Uh, they actually called George Washington the town destroyer. Um, so they didn't think too fondly of, of our, our uh, founding father and first president. And also, of course, you know, as, as, at the time, uh, if you were a slave, it wasn't a very democratic place. So when people talk about, oh, you know, democracy, it, it's no longer a democracy, I would say it was never a democracy. Yeah, no, that that I love hearing. Well, and for the longest time, too, it, it, this idea of politicians even talking about America as a democracy is is new. Um, I, I don't remember when it actually started, but uh, I mean, let's just say I don't even think it's been within the 100 years. Um, but that just goes to show you that that uh, d- democracy is used by politicians. <laughs> it's a brand. It's a branding exercise. It's. Telling people they have something that they don't have and that they're at risk of losing it. Um, it drives me nuts every time I hear somebody say, the state of American democracy is on the line with its election. Right, right. No, it's not. And the fact that you think it is just goes to prove it's not a democracy in the first place because that a democracy would not have allowed that to happen. So, yeah, there's a lot of rhetoric about democracy, uh, mostly from the Democrats. I, I've heard even some Republicans say, you know, America is not a democracy. They're starting to say the silent part uh, out loud. Uh, and again, it's new. You know, I guess I would agree with you. I, uh, I don't think that they talked about America being a democracy, um, at least in elite circles, for probably a long time. And now, you know, it sounds good and, and it's favorable uh, to talk about democracy, but again, elites and those with power and privilege have never been in favor of democracy, although there's a lot of rhetoric about it, because, of course, democracy interferes with power and privilege. So I'll go back to Aristotle, which many of the founding fathers, um, you know, designed their government uh, after some of the influences of the ancient Greeks, and then, I mean, maybe even more so uh, Rome. But um, I, I, I like that, you know, Athens and studying the ancient Greeks and Aristotle and Plato, which Plato actually, if you read the Republic, now with a leftist lens, it was one of the most totalitarian societies ever constructed, talking about um, uh, philosopher kings making all the rules. And, you know, hopefully that philosopher king will be, um, you know, uh, a good person or, or whatever. And if not, uh oh, that, that could be trouble, you know, but I, I don't like kings and queens. And that was one part of the revolution that I liked, you know, American Revolution, we, we kind of overthrew those kings and queens, but unfortunately, um, you know, they got replaced with corporate executives and CEOs. Um, but, you know, Aristotle kind of uncovered the problem of democracy, um, that, you know, if there was real democracy in ancient Greece and Athens, and at the time, I think uh, less than 20% of Athens, even at its most democratic time period, I think like less than uh, 20% or something like that actually got to vote. I believe even Aristotle couldn't vote too. He was you know, pretty high up in society, but still couldn't vote. So it was only for the very, very privileged um, in Athens. So uh, democracy has been expanded in the United States to include, you know, women and, um, you know, minorities. And that's, that's a great thing. But, you know, going back to how the, the country was um, founded and, and the template, you know, ancient Greece wasn't all that great too. They had slavery, Women couldn't vote back then either. Um, 
But what Aristotle said was, you know, if there is going to be a democracy, um, the, the people, if there's a real democracy, like a real functioning democracy, not like whatever the United States is, but a real functioning democracy, the majority would use their privilege for land reform and more equal dis- distribution of resources. And of yeah. course, now I'm talking for Aristotle, that would be unjust. So what Aristotle decided was, hey, if we have like a welfare system, like maybe, you know, in line with the modern Scandinavian countries to, to make, um, you know, to, to kind of spread out, um, you know, social services like healthcare and education and that sort of thing, the the the, the population would be less, um, you know, confrontational or violent, and um, you know, there'd be a little bit more peace and harmony in society. Or, you know, you got the welfare state is one problem to you know democracy or too much democracy, and you have the framers of the Constitution like James Madison. He went the other way. He said, you know, we could have this welfare state and, and make it a more just society or maybe, a, a you know, a society with, um, you know, a better welfare state, um, you know, again, like the modern Scandinavian countries. Or what you could do is limit democracy. You could say you have to have so much land. You have to be in a certain religion. You have to be a certain skin color. You have to have, you know, so many, um, you know, acres or um, so much money in the bank or you have to be married or, you know, you, you, you have to be a male, you know, so... What they did was kind of limit democracy to this little club of very rich white people, essentially. And then, um, you know, I guess you had like a social system and a caste system at the the time where maybe if you started out poor in life, by the end of your life, maybe you could have enough wealth to actually vote someday. So, of course, you know, we got a lot more democracy than that. But the, the entire country was founded on limiting democracy and and yeah. there's always a fight for democracy we always want to expand it like from the right uh i heard arguments like hey why, why do 18 year olds get to vote they shouldn't be allowed to vote let's make it 25 you know which you know the, the young the youth tend to vote you know more leftist or more progressive so that's why they want to do that obviously uh and the same thing for like felons people that are put in prison and serve their time i remember you on the on the on the pino podcast you had made this argument i'm all about it why why should People that are in jail, why yeah. shouldn't they vote? I mean, you know, what's the problem in that? They, let's get everyone to vote. That's the way I see it. Let's keep expanding it. That's a leftist fight. We should continue to expand democracy, and the fight for democracy is never over. No, um, but it that's the beauty of, of, of the political system that we have today, though, is people are not going to fight for something that they think that they already have. They think that we have a democracy. Now, they think it's a fragile democracy. Um yeah, the 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 founding father it, and Republicans will love to say, well, we're not a democracy, we're, we're a republic, as all as if that somehow equates. Um, I don't really know the even... difference. What's I don't. I mean, I guess I guess a representative democracy. I had a, a political scientist on there, and he said we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Isn't that just semantics? Don't they mean similar things? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, that's what they try to equate. But they try to equate the well. Well, the argument is that a republic is more representative because it's not majority rule <laughs> that that's literally their argument uh which is basically the slave argument that the slavery states are using uh with the electoral college uh it, it's not and i i get that there's merit to that idea of having a represent representational so-called democracy but we don't even have that so even by the Repu- by the standards of a republic we're not even a republic we're, I mean, we were always an oligarchy. Um, I mean, we talk about the 1% today. It was the same 1% that founded this nation. Most of the founding fathers were part of that 1%. So it's not a new phenomena. It's been ongoing. 
And I've read, you know, some economic stuff that we're in a new gilded age uh, of unprecedented wealth inequality. In the United States, I think, in terms of, like, comparisons to Europe, the uh, the inequality here is off the charts. Uh, There's a lot more, I mean, not that Europe is perfect or equal, but there's a little bit less extreme wealth and inequality and poverty there because of a lot of the, you know, the EU and some of the social networks and safety nets and, and welfare programs. The United States, I mean, we have Medicare and Social Security, and both are being attacked um, bipartisanly. So whatever we have, it's still even being attacked. I mean, uh, what we need is, you know, uh, so I'll go to like the homelessness epidemic, and it's hard to pin down, you know, just how many homeless people there are out there. I've seen figures around maybe 500,000, give or take. I think we have like something like 2 million or more um, houses that are um, that are uh, vacant. Um, so we don't have a we don't have a homeless problem. We have a we have a lack of will. Um, we could change this yeah. problem. I, I said in the past, maybe a, a hard weekend of work to, to turn some of these vacant homes into housing. Um, maybe a little bit longer than that, but certainly, you know, what they want to do is to make sure we don't take on this, you know, take on this problem. Uh, and they do that by making sure we're busy, making sure we're tired, making sure we don't have enough time. They, they want to yeah. make sure that, uh, there's not a lot of idle hands out there and, and they want to make sure there's a lot of ignorant people out there that aren't aware of the problems going on in, in society. And that's kind of the role of the propagandist media. If you're, if you're watching the media, you know, you're not talking about this homelessness problem. You're not talking about this wealth inequality problem for the most part. You're, you know, everything's all good. Like, Oh, here's a feel good story. Here's another feel good story. Oh, look at this, look at this cute kitten, you know, or I don't know. I don't even watch mainstream news. Uh, and then, you know, maybe the football game score, maybe some weather report, and um, they're going to give you the stock market. I just summed up the news. You know, they, they're not talking about any issues that matter or any of the massive problems in the United States. And I think one of the issues and one of the things that the agenda setting media tried to do um, is to certainly, you know, propagandize, um, distract and keep people in a veil of ignorance. Well, we ha- yes. I mean, just consider what passes now as a feel-good story you know 76 year old disabled man that had to work at walmart you know uh, blah 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 has cancer and his yeah, dog to, yeah to pay for his granddaughter's cancer operation you know like how great yeah. is this like imagine if we actually had a healthcare system and he could retire and, and enjoy his life you know it's like oh great yes that's a real feel-good story <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> oh, absurd yeah it's it's utterly depressing mm-hmm. but we have this society and this mindset of of individualism we're not a collective society we don't act collectively we don't think collectively it is all well if you're poor that's because of your individual choices it's not the system it's your individual choice and that this i found spreads across even to to the left where people buy into these arguments i mean you've got people on the left that were are into means testing for instance um can you define that a little bit i i I don't like the, the word means testing, but that just means like, hey, I'm poor, prove it type of thing. Or, or is well, that- right. So it would be like setting like setting income levels. Like if you make over um, $100,000 or something, you're not um, – you don't qualify. So let, let, let's just say yeah, – so- yeah, They make it easy like that. Say, so, okay, but what about your debt? What about the student loan crisis that's right. going on right now? You know, Or what about these insane mortgages? I read somewhere that um, – I think in the 70s, the average time to pay off a mortgage was, uh, you know, like 11 years or 10 years or something like that. Now it's 30, and we're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in just finance fees. It's ridiculous. 
Yeah, no. And, and, and that, that's exactly the problem. And, 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 and again, it, it, when you just think about the, the public health aspects of all, I mean, let me give you an example. Let's say Medicare for all or healthcare system, universal healthcare system. And the argument is, well, well, I don't want to pay for a rich person's health care. So you'd means test that. You'd say, well, if you make over a million dollars, you don't get this, you don't get this free health care. You have to pay for it. That is an utterly bogus argument to make. It, it's, everybody needs to be invested in the same system, the same healthcare system. If you have this means testing where you've got a group of people over here, guess what that group of people is going to have? They're going to have better resources and they're going to have better health care. And they're eventually going to move us back into the very system that we have today. You can't means test or with college education. I'm not going to pay for some rich kids to go to college. Um, yeah, you actually kind of should because that makes them invested in, in the public interest. The community, sure, the public interest, the community, the common good. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, what they want to do is take uh, – they, they want to put the personal responsibility and self-interest. They want to make that in greed a virtue, and they want to make us forget about community, cooperation, and solidarity, and the way I see it, we're all in this together. You know, we we're they're trying to what they're trying to do is divide. You know, yeah. if we're if we're too busy, caught up in the culture war, uh, and and you know, and bickering amongst ourselves over frivolous differences. Um, that's what I liked about you and um, Josh's conversation on the Pino podcast. Uh, what they try to do is, you know, hey, you're a conservative or. I don't even yeah. like. I don't think Republicans are conservative. They're they're right wing reactionaries. But anyways, that's for another you know philosophical political philosophical discussion. Um, but you know there there's a lot of um, unfortunately confused and misdirected angry people in the Republican Party. If they would just understand that you know if working class and poor people work yes. together. Uh, and fight back against our class oppressors, we're going to have a lot better society. Unfortunately, what they try to do, basically we have two business parties. We have a rural business party, the Republicans, and we have a more urbanized business party, the Democrats. And those are usually, you know, the corporate elites that go to Yale and Harvard that tends to be, um, you know, the Democratic Party and the Republicans are, you know, we're just common working class people. But what they what many of these working class people that vote for, voted for Trump, he rode the backs of working class people into the White House. What they don't understand is the Republican Party is the most elitist party of them all. I mean, the, the people funding that party are the billionaires yeah. that don't want to pay taxes, you know. And when Trump got in the White House, his policies kicked them in the face. Uh, first thing is he did is, just as everyone is suspected, he cut taxes on the rich. And that means social programs like Medicare and even like some of these urban um, medical centers and clinics and hospitals, if it wasn't for federal funding, they would go belly up. And uh, and that's what kind of what happens when Republicans get in there. These these urban uh, urban Republican working class people that are I, I, I kind of see them as confused. Uh, they're they're voting against their interests because um, you know without federal funding and without solidarity, you know, like the rich states. I, that's what I like about the Republic versus the EU, which is the, the EU is like a is a super is a supra governmental organization. You know, you got Greece and Germany and 
Britain, they have their own governments, but then they go uh, and vote, uh, you know, on things for, for the union. Um, and you get things like um, the financial crisis and Greece paying interest rates out the wazoo to Germany, you know, who, um, you know, less than a half century ago was invading, you know, and, and, and trying to take over the continent. What you have in the United States, which is good, is you kind of have a little bit of built-in solidarity. So, like, you know, states, the wealthier states like California and New York are actually helping to fund the poorer states like Mississippi. So what people don't understand, it's kind of a good thing. You know, we, we kind of have solidarity and, and uh, cooperation built in, but every set step of the way, the Republicans and even the Democrats are trying to take solidarity, cooperation, we're all in this together, and try to take it out of the public consciousness and try to pit uh, us against each other. And they also use fear and war to distract us with the problems that are, hey, let's get this booklet back out here. Our infrastructure, that's a C minus. You know, all these, all the, or the, what, what problem do we want to talk about? The environmental problem, the student debt crisis, the inflation and cost of living crisis. I mean, I could keep going on. I, I don't, there's no shortage of crises going on right now. You know what I mean? Well, I've heard that Bidenomics is working. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, boy. Don't even get me started on that guy. And he's the new Reagan. That's the way I see it. He's the yeah. new Reagan. He's just the poster child. He's just the front man, the figurehead of the Democratic Party. He, you know, comes out of his little hole, his little cave once or twice a week or once a month. And they, his handlers try to make sure he doesn't make a big gaffe and fall down on his bike or make a, an absurd speech. And then they put him back in hiding and then he comes out again. Um, certainly the Democratic machine is going on behind the scenes. And of course, there's even, you know, uh, Trump uh, leftovers like Louis DeJoy, right? Of the, right. So, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're in bed together. They want to make us seem like, you know, there, there's uh, political rivalry between Democrats and Republicans, but they kind of just work together, don't they? Oh, yeah. No, it's one big club. Um, you know, I mean, Joe Biden's uh, considers Mitch McConnell to be a, to be a best friend. Um, yeah. Economically. In terms of defending the status quo of the system, they're both in parity. They both absolutely agree and, and are going to maintain the status quo. The, I guess the difference, uh, and frankly, I don't see much of a difference, but I guess if you were going to argue that there was a difference, I guess you could say that it would come with social policy. Um, social policy, what, some stuff on abortion, that's right. about it, right? But what people don't understand is that they're not really for um, the LGBT community. They're not really for a woman. These social issues that they claim to champion and the, the little crumbs that they will occasionally drop for, for these issues, they mean nothing without reforming the fundamental system from which these issues emerge. And without that, and nothing's going to change because you're not solving, you're, you're treating a symptom, you're not treating you're not going after the disease. You're just treating symptoms here and there. And that's what we have in this country with healthcare, the environment, uh, infrastructure. Um, I mean, these are all very minuscule symptoms of a much larger problem that we're not addressing. And that's where you get these divisions, where you get you know, the need for women's rights, because you've got these, I mean, and again, it's all economic in root. Uh, stripping women of their power. I mean, that goes back to, you know, the agricultural settlements where the reason for women being taken out is because now they needed more people 
to till a field and, and take care of the crops. And so women were regulated all of a sudden to the childbearers. And, you know, we've come a long way since that point, I suppose, depending on which party is in power. There's been, there's been yeah, there's been progress. There's been progress. It's slow. The civil rights era was, was great. Yeah. I mean, there's not slavery here anymore. Women can vote. There's a lot of positives. Um, but if you want to go to foreign policy, the United States is at war and continues to be at war and has been at war since 1776. So the foreign policy and the military industrial complex, that's certainly not been dismantled. In fact, the military budget is continuing yeah. to balloon. And um, but yeah, I mean, certainly we have domestic issues and a lot of domestic problems, although, you know, some social issues have improved, certainly. Um, but, you know, we got the police state domestically. Yeah. We got mass incarceration and locking up disproportionate amount of black people and minorities. We got the crime bill, which Joe Boss, Joe Biden yeah. was uh, the architect. Um, and I think the race war, the class war, the drug war, to me, they're kind of all one and the same. What the what the drug bill did was kind of, um, you know, criminalized, gave gave police a reason to go into inner cities and bust, um, you know, black people smoking weed and stuff. Uh, the, the, uh, and I've, I've said this on another podcast, but there has to be a war on drugs because of all the clandestine wars, um, overthrowing governments around the world, trying to topple and, you know, in, uh, orchestrate coup d'etats, uh, because the, the way you do that is you have to have a lot of dark money, you know, to kind of fund these black ops around the world, you know, CIA and overthrow governments that we don't like. Of course, we ally with, um, you know, some of the worst dictators and human rights abusers in the world. But any slightly progressive government, you know, the United States and its history in Latin America is terrible. Um, you know, what they try to do is uh, and they actually did a coup d'etat in Ukraine, uh, which isn't talked about much. I believe yep. it's 2014. 2014. But the way that you overthrow um, governments that you don't like is through black ops. And you typically I read uh, this story on one of my podcasts. Gary Webb kind of uh, uncovered the web of narco trafficking where mm-hmm. they um, they were shipping weapons to Nicaragua as they, as they wanted to throw overthrow that government. So they shipped weapons to the Contras. And what they did was used money from drug sales in L.A. to buy these weapons and ship them to Nicaragua. And in return, they got high-grade cocaine, which was also the beginnings of the crack epidemic. Uh, this is We're talking about, I think it was um, late 80s, early 90s, somewhere around that time. Uh, but yeah, one way to get dark money, untraceable money for blacks, black ops is through the drug ring. So, uh, and I think that, you know, there's the, there's the problem in Mexico with narco trafficking and the cartels, they are very heavily tied. I'm sure of it. I mean, I haven't seen any books on it, uh, of late, but I'm sure that the cartels are heavily tied in with Mexican government officials as well as American government officials. It's a dark, dirty world. Uh, and if they ever, they don't want to stop the drug problem. They want to make sure the drug war continues. So they have a front. And so they have a method of, you know, obtaining and extracting dark money to fund these, uh, dark, uh, dark ops projects around the world to topple, topple governments that, uh, are not friendly to American power interests. And I just want to point out too, that is how you can actually tell if something is democracy or not. Um, if America were a democracy, we would be bombing the hell out of ourselves. Yeah. Um, 
We'd start. Uh, we'd start in Washington. If we, if we, want, if we really wanted to spread democracy, yeah. um, we would start in Washington D.C. I just got two. Um, I got two books here by Noam Chomsky. He's my favorite author. I got the Washington Connections, the Washington Connection, and Third World Fascism. And I also have uh, Chomsky on Western terrorism, which both these books kind of go into the schemes of narco trafficking and uh, American terrorism and the overthrowing and toppling of foreign governments uh, in order to set up puppet regimes. And I'm sure that's what they um, wanted to do in Afghanistan. They spent 20 years oh, trying yeah. to overthrow the Taliban and, 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 and put uh, a puppet government in place. And instead, uh, I don't know, $11 trillion or a lot of money later, uh, we basically, in 20 years and lots of um, dead people and, and dead civilians and dead innocent people, uh, we, we spent uh, 20 years there to replace the Taliban with the Taliban. So not only is it unjust and a war crime, but it was also inefficient and uh, expensive uh, to U.S. taxpayers. So instead of, um, you know, getting health care and education and solving the student debt crisis, what we got was more war like we always do. Well, and I, I want to point out to people as well that we're not out of Afghanistan. All we've done is privatize that war. Uh, mercenaries. And, yeah. yeah, mercenaries. And uh, so we're, we're far from being out of Afghanistan. It's just another capitalistic invention. And, you know, where's all the money going right now? It's going to the military industrial complex, who, by the way, happens to own the mainstream media. Literally. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I read at one point that... Um... Uh, Westinghouse owned the New York Times. I don't know if that's the case anymore, but it's not at all surprising that the New York Times seems to always be in support of American imperial war efforts. Uh, if you're an umbrella in a public relations wing of a defense contractor, uh, it's not surprising that they would be in support of World War War, is it? No, and that's exactly the problem. Um, you know, the, the entire media apparatus, and I'm talking about television news, I'm talking about radio news, I'm talking about newspapers, magazines, and so forth, even book publishers, is currently owned by, I think it's eight individuals control all of the media. And that breaks down to, I forget how many corporations. Here's, and, I had, um, I had, uh, um, political fight club. Blanking on his name, I've had a lot of people on lately. But we were talking about, um, I guess the the Department of De or Defense, I guess the uh, the DOD, uh, yeah, Department of Defense, I guess essentially develops and uh, funds um, Call of Duty, and uh, I guess the oh, first yeah. Top Gun movie was a naval <laughs> propaganda uh, exercise, and I think a lot of um, federal dollars also funded the second Top Gun. I'm not I'm not sure of the second one, but I know the first one was funded by the navy and they got millions of dollars to do that movie which is essentially a propaganda flick and an entertaining one i will say that both were entertaining uh, but they're also essentially propaganda flicks yeah we are the most propagandized planet i think not not planet uh, <laughs> is there, is there, what, yeah. what, what planet comes in second i'd love to know <laughs> mars <laughs> um you know we're the most uh propagandized country i think on the planet uh, you know, people often think, well, no, 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 that would be Russia or what have you. No, because what we have is basically the same thing as the state media apparatus, because, again, it's it's in the hands of just a handful of people. And, you know, the government has been engaged in, in propaganda. Uh, in fact, I think it was Barack Obama who, who rescinded uh, an executive order or uh, law that made it illegal to propagandize to the American people. That was Barack Obama decided, yeah, we don't need that. We're going to repeal that so that we can, I mean, so that 
what does that tell you? That tells you that you have a government that is completely invested in the enslavement of its people for the capitalistic regime. And these wars are just part and parcel of that. Um, you know, and it's, well, what, there was recently, a movie. I'm trying to think, there was recently a movie, there was a lot of backlash that came from it because the military was sending recruiters to this movie. Do you know what I'm talking about? This was I'm a, not sure, no. Yeah, they were actually sending recruitment posters and, and actual recruiters outside of this movie theater. And they were trying to say, no, 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 there's, there's no tie. It's just this is a you know good good film that supports the military. Yeah. And so there's no tie-in at all. Yeah. Really? Really? No tie-in? Um, when you're sending recruiters outside the, <laughs> the movie theater, I, I think that there's a, there's a problem. I mean, well, and who, who are we recruiting, by the way? Right? Who are we recruiting for the military? Minorities, vulnerable people, people in lower socioeconomic uh, backgrounds. and They know. have no other option yeah. economically but to go and put their lives on the line to, quote-unquote, defend a democracy that doesn't exist. All you're doing is serving – again, you have to go back to the justification for wars. There, You can go through the list. Yeah. Iraq was threatening us. I mean, they were they were interfering with U.S. national security. All the however thousands of miles away they were, yeah. and, you know, uh, Saddam Hussein's you know military, which I think was rated as the weakest in the region, but somehow you know the government of Nicaragua were threatening us. Somehow the the people of Afghanistan and that tiny little country in Asia, uh, thousands and thousands of miles away, in Vietnam, what were they doing threatening U.S. national security uh, all the way on the other side of the globe? You know what I mean? Yep. And and yeah, I mean, the, I think the invasion of Iraq is is is. Uh, <laughs> I think that epitomizes the whole problem. I mean, if you consider well, any of these, I mean, whether it's Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, um, but in the case of Iraq, right after the invasion of Iraq, there was no sovereign control that protected the people of Iraq when we left. We left that country in a worse position than it was. Millions were forced to leave their homes. Hundreds of thousands of civilians were were, were killed, and like you know, it was the most violent country at the, at the world of the at the time of the U.S. occupation, or something like that. It was horrific. Yeah, and life under Saddam Hussein was better in terms of meeting the basic requirements of everyday life, and there was a Again, this wasn't. It was not perfect. It was brutal. We have no right to overthrow or interfere exactly. in the government of a, of a of a foreign country, though. The only people that have a say on who's ruling them is the people of Iraq, not us. You know. Well, I think that the argument surrounding that goes something like, "Well, but if human rights are being violated and blah 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 blah, we got to intervene." That's a good argument. That's a persuasive argument. Then if we might as well start with Egypt and Saudi Arabia, then too, which is our, our allies and which are very harsh. Uh, uh, authoritarian regimes that uh, have a, an abysmal human rights record. So why don't we start there? Well, we ought to start right in our own country because we're just as authoritarian and fascist as, as the rest of them. Uh, but yeah, that, that- I, I want to push back on that one. I think that we do have some freedoms. Um, I like so this is this is what you and um, Josh had talked about. I don't think the United States is fascist, although we certainly have fascist tendencies, and there's no question about it. A state corporate nexus. Um, but the way I see fascism. 
I see fascism as what was going on in Europe in the 1930s with rounding up people and putting them in ghettos and later concentration camps and uh, extermination um, on an industrial scale. So I don't think we're quite there yet, but no question about it, we are... Have, we have fascist tendencies, for sure. We're, we're a country run by the corporate state nexus, but more so, I think, corporations own and operate the government and by their favorite political leader, um, you know, and, and they, when the leaders get in there or whatever, I don't even like leaders, what I want is representation, rural working class representation, but unfortunately, we have, you know, leaders that get in there and kind of dictate policies to us, so it is, you know, a slightly authoritarian country, but not as authoritarian as, you know, the Putin uh, iron fisted regime in Russia. So, I mean, I think on there's, it's always a scale, you know, there's always a scale. Um, and I, and I think there's no question about it. The United States has, um, you know, fascist tendencies and the corporate state nexus is strong and it's always verge or it's always teetering on. You never know, you know, if it keeps, if we keep getting these right wing leaders in there, you never know, but I don't think it's, um, a society that I would compare with what was going on. Uh, my favorite time period is Spain, um, you know, the, the Spanish anarchist revolution, uh, and unfortunately that ended with Franco and, the, and, and that dictatorship um, as, you know, as country after country were, was toppled by fascism in, in Europe at the time, a very scary time. But what's not talked about is following World War II, um, the conservative order at the time, which, you know, allied with Nazis and, and fascists, was very, very unpopular. And as the United States, and we talked about the war in the Pacific, as the United States was taking over what they did to break up these resistance movements that were very harsh and critical of fascists and Nazism uh, is allied with Nazis and fascist collaborators because that's what they were doing during the 1930s and during World War II was breaking up unions and worker-led organizations and dissident movements and and all those sorts of things. So that's a dirty little secret about post-World War II that's not talked about is the United States uh, and the old world order, um, you know, the, na- the Nazi fascist order in, in Europe um, the United States set up a new world order, uh, and that was not much different than the old world order, and they used, again, fascist and Nazi collaborators to um, maintain their power and influence over Europe, which they still have today. Uh, Europe tends to go along with the United States' imperial agenda, even though there's protests every single day in Europe I've seen over the last year or so in opposition to uh, the NATO war in Ukraine. It's very, very unpopular, and there's definitely a lot more pushback than there used to be in Europe. And the United States' reputation, it's growing and becoming a, a nas- a, an international pariah. Let me push back a little bit on that. Okay, so I would agree that we're not at a level of fascism that, that took place during the Holocaust. That, that I would agree with slightly. The method of extermination of people is what I think has changed. It's, it's much slower here in the United States. Um, I mean, you've got executions by police that's happening increasingly. Um, Concentration camps, I'm not sure that our prisons are much different from concentration camps and the inhumane treatment the prisoners are subjected to. Um, they're not being grouped into the gas chambers, so I'm going to definitely push back on that. I mean, they're they're not rounding up people by the hundreds and putting them in showers and saying you're going to clean off and then, you know, it's actually poisoned gas. So I would say, yes, there are differences, although 
it's a mass incarceration state. You know, it's a prison state, no question about that. But I, I definitely think there's some clear differences between our prisons and what was going on in Nazi Germany at the time of the Holocaust. No, again, and I agree fully with that. Um, I just think that the term concentration camp doesn't necessarily always refer to execution. I, I think it's about the human dignity and the human rights that are that surround that context. Um, you mentioned that we are freer. Um, in that's a theoretical argument. Let me let me go ahead and just give you this to you. I think in the United States. Freedom is a commodity. If you got a lot of money, you can buy a lot of yes. freedom. So that's the way I see it. It's freedom for people with means and wealth. But I, you, you know, if you're if you're someone that's got to work three or four jobs just to make ends meet, no, you're certainly not very free. And that's wage slavery, which I see is not much different than chattel slavery, which is um, what the people during the Civil War thought they were fighting uh, against. They thought they were fighting against this new spirit of the age, uh, gain wealth and forget all but self that was taking over America. Um, you know, they thought that, you know, against uh, wage slavery wasn't all that much different than chattel slavery. They were fighting against, you know, being made and forced to work in factories all day long, you know, 10, 12 hours a day just for the subsistence to get by. That's not a very good life. And that's what, again, uh, unfortunately would happen. So slavery um, was certainly ended, at least chattel slavery with the, with the civil war. Um, but a new uh, slavery, that's not much different, a uh, new system of it at least took place. Um, and that's wage slavery. And, you know, I think now debt is the primary method um, that, you know, the, the yes. ruling class used to control us and, and make no, uh, we don't have to go much farther than the $2 trillion uh, student debt crisis that's going on right now that Biden said he was going to help and maybe try to solve and maybe cancel ten dollars or $50,000 worth of debt. How'd that go? Well, first of all, he, he used the Ron, and I, I don't remember the specific He knew it was going to fail from the get-go. Yes. He didn't want it to succeed. He knew from the get-go, him and his administration, they were well aware of what was going to happen. They knew Absolutely. exactly what was going to happen before they even tried it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, this goes back to, again, giving people crumbs. Um, just keeping us on the verge of poverty, just keeping us alive, just, just yes. making enough money to get by and, you know, contribute to production. And, you know, they can't work us 365 24, 365, but they're going to try their best to work us as much as they can without a revolution, certainly a violent revolution happening. Well, right. And all of this ties in, too, because what we see in this country is um, a pattern of it's like a. It's like a chain where one links to the other. Everything is connected. We've got, you know, all of this feels back to. Well, let me let me posit something real quick to you. During slavery, right? The slaves and and I'm I'm being very liberal with the terms here. I, I'm I'm just trying to make a point. Um, slaves were provided with food, some form of shelter, right? The basic necessities that that kept them alive. How is that much different today? Where, except for the fact that now you basically are owned by your employer, they don't cover your health care. They don't cover your 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 lodging. They don't cover your 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 food. They don't even provide you. They provide you with a wage that you can barely subsist on. Allow me to interject here. I'm gonna just gonna I'm gonna flip it on you. I'm gonna say that um, that form of slavery was a lot more humane. And here's the slavers' argument. And I'm just kind of repeating a Chomsky argument. Uh, if you have a car and you own that car, you're gonna take pretty good care of it. Well, we take pretty good care of our slaves. They're our livelihood. You know, they produce yeah. for us. Uh, we're going we're gonna to make sure they have enough food and shelter and, 
you know, we're not going to be cruel to them because they are our property. Um, but if you rent a car, you know, you might not fill it up with gas. You might hit the accelerator. You might hit the brake a little bit too hard because who cares? Well, that was the slaver's argument. Uh, the slave masters or whatever. I'm being liberal with these terms here too, just trying to make a point. Uh, that was their argument though. You know, you guys, you know, you, you, um, you, whatever they call, <laughs> you know, the, the people up north, you entrepreneurs or you industrialists, <laughs> you're just going to rent your slaves. And when they're broken down and they can't contribute anymore, you're going to throw them out. And they were right. We, uh, I guess, you know, in the abolitionist movement, there was not a good um, argument against the slavers at the time. Now, of course, uh, I'm being a little bit facetious or you know, right. tongue, tongue in cheek or something like that. You know, I'm never good with these phrases. Um but yeah, I mean, wage slavery, again, it, the only difference is it's temporary. You know, you can go home at the end of the day. You get some holidays and weekends off. But you're exactly right. If you're just renting your workforce, and that's part of the economic system and the dogma with it, there has to be some percentage of unemployed workers. I just had a worker uh, organizer, Nate Went, a couple nights ago. And that was his, you know, argument. There, And, and that's, that is the argument. There has to be some dogmatic... Uh, economic framework ideology that yeah uh, 8% or somewhere between like 5 and 10% there has to be unemployment that's like the good number because if it's down to zero unemployment you know workers are going to have the advantage workers are going to say hey you know we're at full employment I demand a higher wage I demand uh, more vacation time or I'll just go down the street because they're looking for people right now we're at full employment nobody's on the street that wants to wants to work uh, we're all at work right now there and, and that's the that's a little dark secret about the capitalist system it's not very good at pe- putting people to work there's no shortage of idle hands around the world um, but all just go look around your local community there is tons and tons of work to do do I have to get out the sheet again <laughs> gotta get the sheet out again uh, I, I'll just go to, okay, schools. What rating does that get? D plus. Solid waste disposal. C plus. Okay. Stormwater. That gets a D. Transit. D minus. I mean, there's no short of problems here. I'm just looking at this 2021 um, report on infrastructure in the United States. I just printed this out for another talk um, the other night. But there's no shortage of major issues that we need to solve here in the United States. But yet, for some reason, there has to be a certain percentage of the population unemployed. Why? That's dumb. Well, no, it, again, it goes exactly. Well, it's smart if you're a capitalist and you own the society, yeah. then you can make sure the workers never have too much power. So it's not dumb. It's actually smart if you buy Absolutely. into that economic dogma, at least. Well, and, and again, let's let's talk about the renting of, of, of labor, which is exactly what's happening. Um, yeah, in theory, people work eight hour work days and have weekends off and they have vacation time. But again, that's all theoretical because the the average person doesn't actually have those. They've got two jobs. Some some have three jobs. These jobs don't provide these benefits because again, they're they're part time positions and not. Now, now you're talking about the gig economy where there's no benefits, there's no retirement, there's no health care, and if you're an Uber driver, you're using your car and your gas, your wear and tear to perform your labor. Yeah, well, I wasn't even referring to the gig economy. I was just referring to, uh, but, but that's absolutely right. You've got people doing gig work now. Um, I mean, there was a clip with went viral with George Bush, you know, the non-intelligent one, um, who some mother was talking about. You know, I've got three jobs. Yeah, that, I remember that know, clip. And, and he's yeah. like, "Oh, how? Oh, that's that's the American dream or something like yeah. that. Like what? Hey, that's a nightmare." 
<laughs> but that's the reality people are living in. Two, three, four jobs, uh, the gig economy, and, and, and we're going to see the expansion of this gig economy too. That That's going to just really take off across so the So that's, that's the, the job numbers. They always point to these job numbers, and they never link, you know, pay. Pay uh, right. hasn't kept up since the 19, I think 1979 or something like that. Rural wages are about the same as they were in the late 70s. So all these gains in productivity and technology, and yet rural wages have been stagnant for decades. Um, so there's never any talk about wages that, you know, at best keep up with inflation and at worst, uh, outflation out, um, inflation outpaces it. Um, but there's always talk about, oh, jobs numbers, jobs numbers, jobs numbers. Who cares about jobs numbers when the minimum wage is $7.25 an hour? That's not going to buy you uh, groceries. That's not going to buy you – that's not a living wage. That's not going to buy you shelter. That's not going to buy you a cell phone. That's not going to buy you – you're not going to feed a family on that. That's not going to buy you a car, car insurance. I mean if you're lucky, that's going to get you a lunch and maybe dinner, you know, but that's about it. Yeah, and and – what people don't understand about that is the long-term ramifications that that has, not just on that individual, but on society as a whole. Um, it's a public health crisis that we're actually experiencing right now, where the burden of debt, the the lack of a social safety net, um, I mean, all these issues that, again, center around economic in- insecurity. And there's very severe ramifications. I mean, People can barely afford, let's just say that someone making minimum wage has an apartment. It's probably a very small apartment. Um, There's probably several roommates. Several roommates. Um, Let's look at their dietary. Are they eating healthy? Absolutely not. They're eating absolutely junk, processed foods, because that is cheaper than healthy food. So now you've got an obesity problem. You've got other health-related problems. You've got the stress of this entire system that that places. All of this is kind of like the human infrastructure that if you think about it. So we've got the physical infrastructure of our nation crumbling, and we've also got the human infrastructure crumbling because people are in very poor health. I mean, the the the, the, the life expectancy in the United States keeps going, going down. down. Yeah. It's going down. And suicide rates are exploding huh? about, the, about the same rate as the rate of new billionaires. So there's a... Yep. New billionaire every five minutes or something in, in COVID, and probably about the same number of people are committing suicide. I wonder if there's a little correlation there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And all of this, again, comes down to that public health umbrella where um, economic insecurity, um, I mean, nobody, even people, we need to talk about home insecurity rather than just homelessness. How many people are on the verge of homelessness? You know? That's 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 too much good news for one podcast. So let me let me get into some up, <laughs> up, uplifting news. You know, okay. Now let's talk about the victims. I'm being really satirical here. Sometimes you you know sometimes it's best to laugh when you want to yeah. cry. I don't know what else to do. Uh, let's talk about Afghanistan, who was uh, the victim of American imperialism for 20 years, and of course we got out of Afghanistan. I think we froze something like 50 50 billion in assets or something along those lines. Well, oh, of course. Reading. Yeah, I'm just reading here some stats from uh, Afghanistan Emergency uh, World Food Program. Um, We we devastated this country for 20 years. Um, Right now in Afghanistan, 15.3 million people are not consuming enough food. And the the problem and the issue with um, dying of hunger, it's not a a quick death. People can survive on 
weeks and months on on grasses and and roots. It's it's ugly, you know. And this is this is a country. I mean, we're talking about poverty and and um, homelessness in the richest country in world history. But what about you know the countries that are our victims of our uh, foreign policy agenda? Uh, and then to add insult to injury, we're withholding fifty million dollars, fifty billion dollars, uh, and and. And money, we shouldn't. Yep. First off, we shouldn't freeze these uh, assets. We should give them to the Afghan people. But what we also should be doing is paying reparations to this to this mm-hmm. the people of Afghanistan who we've decimated and tortured and terrorized for twenty years. No, absolutely. Well, I, and I got to push back a little bit. What we actually did was spread democracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, yeah. No, I again look at how. America is a genocidal nation. Um, I mean, we we excel in the extermination of people. I mean, look at just the drones. We're drone striking people in in places we're not even even officially at war with. Well, you're talking about the you're talking about the the peace activist, the Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, in his drone war. You're talking about uh, Barack well, Obama, Obama now, aren't you? Yeah. Well, Obama, Trump did it as well. Biden's doing it as well. Yeah. And I'm sorry that. That's that is abhorrent. That is criminal, and that should absolutely be tried as a war crime. Unfortunately, the world does not operate on international law or human rights. The world is governed by force. Typically, we're seeing that in Ukraine. Um, Putin didn't say, "Hey, let's go to uh, let's go to the world court." Uh, I want I would like uh, to make sure that you know Ukraine is not uh, does not. Join NATO and and Russia isn't completely surrounded up to its borders um, from NATO nukes, uh, which is obviously a clear provocation. Yes, um, but no. What what Putin did is you know the world is, is is run by force, and the United States has shown us time and time again that you know it's going to act unilaterally. It's not going to go to uh, the UN or to the World Court uh, when it wants to um, you know do something on the international stage. It's just going to invade and put boots on the ground or more likely uh, planes in the air and bombs and, you know, uh, missiles and, and, you know, that, and that sort of thing, indiscriminate, um, you know, kind of bombing campaigns and, and, and the spread of uh, violence, you know, it's going to, it's going to use its, so the United States is no longer the manufacturing capital of the world when it was uh, following world war two. In fact, I believe it was uh, becoming the manufacturing capital of the world uh, at around 1900 prior to World War One, yes. so at one point in time, you know, United States manufacturing, um, you know, it was it was the center uh, of the world economy, and now it's no longer that. And now our um, biggest export is violence, bombs, and war. Yep. Yeah, I mean, terrorism is what it really is. International terrorism and uh, the party of law and order. Uh, I believe Reagan is the only. Uh, presidential candidate or world leader even to be sanctioned by the world court for his international um, terrorism campaigns in uh, Latin America. But supposedly that's the, that's the uh, party of law and order. And I believe uh, he was sanctioned by the world court. I'm reading some Chomsky's uh, writings back now, because obviously I wasn't even alive when the early Reagan administration was in power, but um, the, uh, you know, the sanctions, I believe, from the World Court came on the same day where Reagan uh, made up a fake holiday called Law Day. I mean, how, how how ironic is it to get sanctioned by the World Court for international terrorism on your self-proclaimed Law Day? That's the party of law and order and their poster child, Ronald Reagan. So. 
Well, well, you know, just just look at the fact that we're not even a signatory to the International uh, Criminal Court. I mean, what does that tell you right there? I mean, and they even say it outright. Well, we don't want our military members to to face, you know, international trial for crimes against humanity. Right. Oh, seems like if, if that was uh, not a problem for you, then you'd join because you wouldn't be engaging in crimes against humanity in the first place. I quoted this on a podcast, I think it was 2002, a vote uh, to make food a international human right. Uh, that vote broke down. I think there was three uh, nations that abstained, but that broke that vote broke down. I think it was 176 to one, uh, and you can guess who that lone country was voting against food being a human right. Uh, that is the national pride of the United States. International pride. Sorry. Yeah. Well, we're not even really a signatory to to the uh, the UN Charter of Human Rights either. I mean, all of that is just... I think we did some shifty stuff. Yeah, I think we signed some portions of it, but not all of them, uh, yes. so that we can justify our, you know, imperial agenda uh, abroad. And even if... And here's the ironic thing about all of that. Even if we were signatories to the International Criminal Court, and even if we did fully subscribe to the UN Charter of Human Rights, it wouldn't matter anyhow. We would still do whatever the hell we want to do and justify it somehow because we've got the military and the economic prowess to to do that. That's called maintaining credibility. Um, I, I've, I've again quoted Chomsky a lot. He's my favorite author, but they're they're like planning documents and classified documents that were either linked or now uh, came to public light. We are a relatively free society. We do have good public speech laws, um, and sometimes thirty years later, you know, these classified documents finally get released and we can analyze them. Of course, if we had a free press in the United States, these documents right. would be talked about every single day, and they're not. So they're usually, you know, uh, the the documents, you know, are, are you know free of free to, and released to the public, but again, not much talked about. Um, but uh, you know, in, in these. And these documents, um, you know, we have to maintain credibility. We have to make it um, seem like we are uh, a very violent country. That's called maintaining credibility, where we don't really follow international law. And if you, um, you know, attack us or, you know, the way that uh, United States leaders and George W. Bush framed the 9-11 attacks was a clear uh, terrorist attack, unjustified. Uh, many innocent people died. Um, but, you know, it wasn't Iraqis that – this wasn't the Iraqi government yeah. or uh, the Iraqi um, – People, it was, you know, an international terrorist organization. And what we made it sound like is, hey, or, or how we framed it was, hey, we're going to use this as an opportunity to accomplish our international imperial agenda. And we're going to attack and we're going to destroy Iraq and we're going to overthrow the government there. And uh, we have to maintain credibility and violence again, because that's our number one strategic or competitive advantage. It's the military and the use of force. We have that uh, we have the, we're the most violent country in world yeah. history, and we're going to use our strategic advantage to make sure the world, um, you know, obeys us. And if you don't obey us, take a look at what we've done in Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam. Uh, we have a we have a long track record of absolutely, uh, you know, really doing some really bad things. Absolutely, and um, I don't know. Th this is uh, just came across this yesterday. Um, NATO, some head honcho of, of NATO, I can't remember his name or what his position was, but he <laughs> he is upset because Brazil is not arming Ukraine. 
And so he has proposed, and he even had a little graph to show this off. Oh, now, now, now we know it's serious. Now we know it's science. He got, he's got yes. a little graph, right? <laughs> the graph carve, threatening to carve up Brazil. You heard that right. Carve up Brazil. You're no longer a No, NATO's a defense organization, though. It's not a hostile military alliance. What are you saying here? Yeah, I know. Well, it's an act of peace, I guess. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. What's the bad news? What's the <laughs> bad news going on in, in the world today? Yeah. Um, let's shift gears a little bit, though. Uh, tell me about uh, tell me about your charitable um, char- tell me about your charitable organization. Oh, let's let's do this first. Tell me about um, just your background and in, in, in your politics and how you kind of got into leftist politics and maybe your path to radicalization or maybe some of the things you've read or some of the uh, experiences you had, what, what led you down this path into leftist politics? You know, I don't know. I was always, always gravitated towards leftist politics. Now, my father has always been a very central Republican. Uh, my mother's never been political. So I had no political influences early on. Um, now, I will admit that the first time that I voted, uh, and again, this was, uh, was the Bush-Gore election. Uh, that was when I was, I think, finally you know, on my own, and, um, and I hadn't even registered to vote. And, and I just re- recall one day looking on the news and seeing George W. Bush speaking and thinking, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> this guy's an idiot. Well, the other guy invented the internet. How could you not vote vote for that guy, right? Well, right. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, you know, I identified as a Democrat. Um, <laughs> when did I discover that that wasn't on the left? It was probably around Bernie Sanders. I, I came around, I was for all of the stuff Bernie Sanders was for long before I even heard about Bernie Sanders. But... I think that Bernie Sanders was really what woke, woke me up to the fact that, wait a minute, you know, the Democratic Party. Um, well, first off, I couldn't stand Hillary Clinton. Um, uh, you know, I, I, we d- I don't like this whole idea of going from one ruler to the next. And that's what it felt like. Like, oh, first the husband, then the wife. Sorry. No. Yeah. You know, let's yeah, pass a yeah, rule. Yeah, like yeah, one, yeah, one Bush family. One, Bush two. I mean, we, we got, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't like to be ageism, but yeah, we got Trump. We got uh, Biden. I mean, how's let's go back to the twenty twenty four election. I mean, how how is this the best we have to author or uh, offer? And yeah, again, I think you are a lot. lot you are like most people who was just outraged. At the, we have Hillary, who's one yeah. of the most unpopular Democratic candidates of recent memory, at least. And we have Donnie Trump, who is one of the most vile human beings to ever live. Oh boy, yeah. you know, yeah, and. You know, part, I'm going to make a very controversial statement here um, that I'm sure will piss some people off. But most sociologists, most people that go into the sociology field, I have found lean towards a socialist perspective because the roots of sociology talks about this chain of equality, the, 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 the effects that reverberate across the entire system of society. And it is quite clear that capitalism is adverse in, in every respect to human thriving. Uh, it is adverse to the human condition. Um, and which brings about a question, um, several questions. 
Uh, what is socialism? I was I mean, ready to ask that. I actually wrote down that on the sheet. I'd love you to define it for me. Well, you're going to be disappointed <laughs> because I can't, because there isn't really a definitive de- definition. Now, some people will link it, link it to Marxist theory. And, you know, look. Are you I a Marxist? Mar- I've had some Marxists on. Are you a Marxist? Um. I don't like subscribing to any one particular theory in its whole. Um, I subscribe to a lot of Marxism, but I wouldn't call myself a Marxist. Same. Um, I, I echo those sentiments exactly. I don't raise anyone to divine status. I love Chomsky, but I'm not a Chomskyan, you know? Right. Right. And, um, I mean, because, you know, the, the conservative, everybody makes that same mistake. They, they line with one particular figure that has an ideological approach and they don't expand upon that. I, I think we need to look at what works in each model. Was was and, Stalin a criminal? Do you, do you think Stalin was one of the harshest uh, dictators and criminals in world history, or are you a uh, or are you or are you more in line with the Marxists who seem to apologize for Stalin and his crimes uh, during this during his ruling of the Soviet era, uh, Union with a with an iron fist? I'm a very absolutist on that. Uh, in, in those types of situations, yeah, criminal. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a lot of I have a lot of Lenin apologists. I don't know if Lenin was quite as bad as Stalin, but I I put Stalin, Hitler, and Genghis Khan kind of in the same category. And I put the U.S. presidents for the most part in the same category. Um, I, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm very not too much pushback here. Yeah, not too much pushback here, at least internationally, not domestically, but internationally in the military industrial complex. Sure, it's been unleashed uh, on, yeah. by every administration, I believe. Yeah. I mean, just and yeah, and again, you look at the history of the country and and how long we've been at war. There's a correlation there, and it's all about. I mean, with the things that we've. I mean, you mentioned Hawaii earlier. A lot of people seem to think for somehow that Hawaii has always been part of the United States, and that's not some new <laughs> new thing. Uh, that was, yeah, at gunpoint. That was a brutal stealing of a nation, just like uh, Texas and California, right? Stolen yes. from Mexico at gunpoint. Absolutely. Um, and, which is funny because we're like, well, why don't they go back to their own home or stay on their side? Well, they kind of are on their own home. We're the intruders on there. And um, I, I want to get back to, you know, you and Josh's discussion. Um, like, unfortunately, like, yeah, it seemed like very, it seems like people are, are very ignorant, um, more so in, on the, in the in the camp of Republicans. Although, you know, there's the blue maggot too, as you know, some people call oh, it yes. on Twitter. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I wish there's a lot more similarities to working class Republicans um, than I think maybe many people would believe, you know, like that's a lot what you and you and Josh were talking about. And that's kind of what my goal is. I mean, it's really hard. First, I guess we kind of have to recruit some of the moderates and get them to come over on our side, uh, you know. Uh, and I, I would say that, you know, the moderates would be the, you know, the slightly left-leaning Democrats, you know, they're going to be a little bit maybe easier to convince to come over to the, the far left on our side. Um, but yeah, I think if we can convince them and maybe change some of the ideas of the Republicans, uh, you know, I don't like to call them conservatives. I don't think there's, I think they're, again, right-wing reactionaries. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of people disillusioned by the propaganda that, 
you know, what the party stands for, which is basically uh, an elitist agenda to enrich the rich and powerful in America. I don't know if the platform stands for much more than that, but we, we have a lot more in common with these working class um, Republicans and these urban republic, or I'm sorry, these rural Republicans. Um, but it's they're they're propagandized and they are uh, under the dogma and ideology that's going to be really challenging to convince them. But we have a lot more in common with these people like you and Josh were saying than um, that many than many might think, right? Oh, absolutely. And he, I just want to point out, interestingly enough, and I think Josh had the same experience. <laughs> I have had more luck conversing with so-called conservatives and Republicans than I have with what I call Blue Maga. Yeah. Blue Maga, you say anything. I mean, you can, you, you can talk to a Republican about, you can say, I think Trump's a fascist. I think Trump is this. And they'll converse with you. It may not be a pleasant conversation, but they will. And I found them to be a lot more tolerant and willing to say, oh, you know what? I kind of agree with that. I agree that this healthcare system is, is corrupt and we need to fix. That's a starting point. Get, finding what you agree on, finding a starting point. I don't care if that person is a racist. I don't care if that person is against gays. If that person is for a universal healthcare system that's going to benefit everybody, I'm going to align with that person on that issue. And then while I'm working with that person, I'm going to work on trying to convert them in other areas of their thinking. Yeah, that's what this is kind of what I want to get to. And you guys talked about it, too. I believe in free speech. I don't like to say I'm a free speech absolutist because that's like what, you know, Elon says. And, you know, obviously people just like democracy, people with uh, wealth and privilege don't like free speech. They want to make sure that they get those free speech rights. But, yeah, I would I'm for the most part, unless it's interfering directly with your I think you had mentioned about uh, a woman saying something about at a protest and getting arrested. And, you know, he had made it a free speech issue, which which I agree with. I didn't I haven't heard that story. But yeah, in general, unless it's directly um, interfering with the safety and well-being of another individual, um, I'm for free speech. And if you truly believe in free speech, then you believe your enemies and you pe- and the people you disagree with have those same entitlements yeah. to free speech as you do. So I oppose cancel culture. Like, um, yep. for example, I saw uh, uh, I forget what it was. It was uh, it was um, uh, DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, and. They were hooting and hollering and not letting them speak. Well, Chomsky, my favorite philosopher and political far- philosopher and far left theorist and activist, he was saying that's the same issue he had in the in the 1970s and protesting the Vietnam War. Yeah. And he was saying the the liberals and the Democrats were the ones getting uh, on his case and yelling and hooting and hollering and not letting him speak. So what I think we should do is to let Ron DeSantis speak, okay? But don't listen to him. Don't. Who cares, you know? And and maybe before and after that event, you can talk to people that are there and say, hey, you know, I, I saw you were at the DeSantis, you know, speech, or uh, I don't like this guy's politics, and here's why. I, I don't know what you do. I don't know the tactics to convert these people, and sometimes maybe they don't want to have that discussion. But but that's interfering with his free speech. Um, I think you let him talk, but don't pay him yeah. any attention. And I think if you can try to convince some of these people that he's spewing hatred and and just nonsense, um, you know. But if you hoot and holler and don't let them talk, I think the people that are there, you've already 
um, got given them a reason to say because if they went out to go see him talk and and you got people on the left, the enemy is they probably see it hooting and hollering and not letting them talk. I mean, they're they're really dug in then, you know. But yeah, what if he would have what if he would have talked and would have said a bunch of nonsense and you're like, wow, I went and saw this guy talk and it was all baloney. I, I can't believe I wasted my time, you know. Because I think ultimately. Uh, the, the right, we have reason, you know, and intellect, at least on the left, you know, and, and we, we have um, our priorities in alignment. Um, I think I think the people on the right, um, you know, it's it's pretty clear, at least to me, that they their their platform isn't standing for much but hatred and bigotry and xenophobia and sexism, you know, and I think the more that you talk with people, the more they can realize that. But if you're going to interfere and cancel someone and not even let them talk, well, you're, that's a right wing tactic. The, the right, um, yep. that's, that's their, that's their favorite tactic, you know, book banning and book burning. That's a right wing tactics. And, and, and if we want to be truly leftists, um, we need to ensure that our, our enemies and our political opponents have the right of free speech. But then once they're done talking, we need to convince the people that are listening to them that, Hey, this is all BS. Yeah, if you're not having a conversation, you're not a, you're not being a participant in change. Um, but but again, it's interesting because I have found that the right is far more tolerant than the left. If you say anything that goes against the narrative that's been established on the left, if you question anything, what I found is you get blocked. Like I, I try to engage with people on social media as much as I can um, because I do. I have reached people, not many, but I have. But Democrats on the left tend to just block you. The minute you say something like, no, Joe Biden didn't do that, or, you know, Joe Biden's been a racist his whole life, you know, just different. The minute you even hint anything like that, they'll block you or they'll, they'll just, they'll, they'll make up their own facts. Whereas again, people on the right, I found the ability to actually converse with. And I just find that utterly interesting. And right now, the left is heavily engaged in this cancel culture and this, um, I mean, there's... The way I see it, what brand of authoritarianism do you like better? You like the Democratic brand or you like the Republican brand, you know? Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, look at Matt Taibbi, who released the Twitter files. He is not a right winger. He has never voted for a Republican. He is a Democrat. He released an article that was very unbiased that stated the facts that Democrats and Republicans were censoring people on Twitter. What did Democrats do? They disparaged him. They said that he wasn't a real journalist, despite the fact that he's been praised as a journalist by these very same people in the past. But yet he says something and says, no, what do Republicans do? They hold hearings. Is anything going to come of those hearings? No, because they, they don't care about censorship any more than Democrats do. But the point yeah. is the Democrats didn't even want to have the discussion. So, all right, we've been talking and we've been all over the place. Um, where do you want to go here? I wanted to ask you some questions about, you know, your, your media platform and your charity and uh, those sorts of things. Do you want to go? Do you want to go anywhere else? Do you have any issues you want to talk about? Uh, you, want, you want me to just keep going here? No, you can go ahead and keep going. I just wanted to um, say that. And this kind of goes right into Citizens.am. Um, platforms need to exist for people like you. I've enjoyed your podcast immensely. I just, uh, I, I haven't finished it. I just listened to your latest one. Um, I think the one that you were talking about. Um, I'm trying to, let me see what the name of the guest was. Uh, episode 12. Okay, yeah. Socialism. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, he, I'm actually having him on again uh, next week. He was a good guest. He had a podcast, uh, the Trickle Down Socialist podcast. Yeah. Uh, he was good. He, he was a, he's a history teacher. Uh, yeah, good dude. I'm gonna have him on again here soon. But the the voices like yours are incredibly important because there are not enough of them out there. there this are is not exactly where I wanted to go here anyways. Independent media versus corporate media. That was next on my agenda anyways. So let's go. Let's get into it. What what is what is lacking in the corporate media that we need to do here on the left this independent media stuff? True journalism is what's missing. Um what what we're getting is propaganda. Um it's all coming from essentially the same source. You've got two different flavors. You've got conservative and you've got the so-called left wing. The so-called all- left, yeah, the so-called left, yeah. Um so what's needed is an independent media. And you look at uh, journalists like Glenn Greenwald yep, or Matt yep. Taibbi or um yeah, there's so many others or uh, are you familiar with the Revolutionary Blackout Network? Familiar. Yeah, haven't haven't listened to too much of it, but yeah, uh yeah, I've Familiar, definitely tweet uh, and retweet a lot of his stuff, uh, for sure. Yep, um, you know, Sabi Sabs, uh, Jimmy Dore, uh, there's David Feldman. Um, these voices are out there, but they're very hard to find. And you have to be very careful, because there's some, like I would say the Young Turks, I think they used to be very progressive, and I think that they've taken this corporate shift that's quite disturbing, um, yeah, once the corporate funding uh, gets yeah. in there, all of a sudden the message changes, doesn't it? Yep, it sure has. Uh, you know, you're talking about things. Um, I You had um, Patrick Cole on. Uh, I think, uh, was it your first episode? No, or uh, known as Pat the Burner? Oh, yeah, last night. Yeah, I had him on last night. Pat, uh, Patrick Cody, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, he and... Uh, were, what is her name? Um, he wrote Lila a book. Charles Lee. Yeah, the Bunch of Pod. No, I was talking about the book. He wrote the Yas, oh. Yas uh, Queen Chronicles with... Okay, um, yeah. Okay, yeah, go ahead. But I can't remember her name. It, it's escaping me for a moment. Um, Savage Joy. Um, all of these people, uh, you know, yourself included, are talking about issues and you're having conversations that need to be had. And people don't understand what socialism is. They don't understand anarchism, anarchy. They don't understand. They don't even understand capitalism for the most part. And it's shows like these that are actually getting activists involved because activists need a place to go where they can get information that is not corporate, that is not propaganda, that is regular people talking about the issues that affect everyday people. And that's one of the reasons why, I mean, right now, uh, talk radio is overwhelmingly conservative in its messaging. Uh, There is not really a leftist um, radio presence. And that needs to change because radio is critical, especially uh, in these, you know, rural areas. Um, I think Fox News isn't the most listened to. uh... Yeah. Media network, I mean, it's it's very popular among a certain sect of people, for sure. Well, I mean, if you look at even Tucker Carlson, a large majority of his audience was, was Democrats, oddly enough. Oh, interesting. Um, so, you know, and we, we talked about this earlier about finding common ground. 
not being afraid to have certain voices on and questioning the official narrative. I mean, look, I have a I have a show as well. Um, uh, and I get things wrong all the time. The difference is I'm going to admit that I'm wrong. And I, I learned things from my guests that I didn't even know. I've learned things from you that I didn't even know. Um, and it makes you think. And it's not easy putting together these shows, let alone getting the, the distribution. There's millions and millions of podcasts out there that, that, that are excellent podcasts, but they have no way to reach an audience. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to, um, I mean, you can't do anything with, with television, obviously, unless you're, you know, billionaire yourself. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to start a radio station that focused on, and I, it, it identifies as a progressive voice. Um, and it definitely has a progressive bias. We're not opposed to putting on something that's, that's not necessarily progressive, something that might be slightly conservative or something like that. But ideally, this what is does that mean to you? Because I, I, I don't say that Republicans are conservative. I think conservatism, the way I see it is you take human rights seriously. You take, um, you know, things like democracy seriously. So I almost fancy myself a classical conservative. I think the Republicans are right-wing reactionaries. I think the way I see it, like, conservatism is, like, to maintain, um, you know, the status quo. But yeah. the, the, the Republicans are not trying to maintain the status quo. They're trying to uh, – Medicare has been around for generations. They're trying to tear that down. That's a reactionary uh, tactic. Uh, Social Security, trying to tear that down. Expansion of the police state and the military-industrial mm-hmm. complex. So – when you say conservatism, what do you mean? Because again, I kind of, I kind of fancy myself a classical conservative. I'm all about self-government and autonomy, human rights, freedom, liberty, justice. So if those things, if you take those things seriously, then I'm a classical conservative. You know? No, I agree with what you're saying. I use the word conservative just because that's kind of in the lexicon yeah. that people are are used to. Um, you know, because a lot of rep- Republicans will say, no, um, I'm a conservative, not a Republican, but I vote Republican. I mean, it's all very confusing, these terms. It is. And they're propagandized. But what, what, yeah. conservative, what, what does conservative mean to you, like when you use it in, you know, in just common conversation? And I want to get to like objectivity and that sort of thing and political philosophy. That's my favorite area to, to, to talk about and maybe even capitalism. But what does conservative mean to you? What does objectivity mean to you? I have a slant to this program. I put it right in the bio. I'm, yeah. uh, this is a radical radical leftist podcast and i'm not going to apologize for it and then i quoted uh howard zinn you can't stay neutral on a moving train well let's go to objectivity first of all objectivity nobody 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 is actually objective anyone that says they're objective i know instantly they're lying or they're at least not to be trusted absolutely it is impossible to be a human being and to be objective it's not how we are wired no that so uh, objectivity the way i look at that the usage of that word uh, as it ought to be is objectivity is admitting the bias that you have and acknowledging it to yourself a lot of people don't even realize that they're self-awareness biased. yeah self-awareness i think you're getting that i agree totally that's good um and having that self-awareness to recognize when things don't make sense and to be willing to, to be open to new ideas and, and, and just to engage in those discussions. To me, that is what being objective is. But it's acknowledging at the very start to yourself and to, to others, you have a bias. Um, the news media, what they ought to have, 
have is they all had a little scroll saying this this program has been influenced and paid for by yeah. all these people. Yeah. Um, I don't know who said it, but they, uh, the politicians should wear NASCAR jackets. So we know that who yeah. owned them. I think that was Robin Williams, RIP. Uh, and maybe the same thing for um, these news networks. Instead of uh, you know the, the flashing little ticker about the news stories, like, hey, th- this 30 seconds here is paid for by Bechtel and yep. Lockheed uh, Martin and Northrop Grumman, and now we're going to go to why we want to continue war wherever else in the world. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, wait a minute. I'm starting to see a correlation between who's, who's uh, advertising uh, during the segment and what their agenda is on the segment, you know? Well, and let's look at MSNBC, because that's the one I'm most familiar with. Um, look at who hosts these programs in the first place. You've got, you know, um, Morning Joe. Uh, used to be a politician, Republican. You've got, yeah. um, I forget what her name is, but she uh, she does the white, something White House in the name, um, Nicole Wallace. She used to be a press secretary for George W. Bush. These they're, are the they're all in bed with each other. It's, it's the Washington consensus. They all have the same <laughs> agenda. You know, then, you know, just because a, just because, a, a, you know, the, 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 whatever, the, the leftist, or I guess the Democratic, leaning media, you know, I think they're slightly right, you know, uh, maybe slightly left in terms of social policy, but in terms of foreign policy, the military (laughs) industrial complex, policing, um, you know, violence, um, corporate domination and control over society, they all want to maintain that status quo. So by no means, you know, they're slightly farther left than Fox News, which is just a right wing, you know, they they even said the the model, the model was we're going to get rid of investigated, uh, investigated journalists and because stuff like that and, you know, um, you know, fact checkers and stuff like that. We're just going to have opinion pieces, you know, guys that just have an opinion that go and they're talking heads that just get on there and rile up the base. That's literally all Fox News is. It's not news. I think there was even a lawsuit. Uh, I think Tarko Carlson was sued because of yes. um, something that he said. He's like, well, you know, everyone knows this isn't is a news program. This is just an opinion program. I'm not, I'm not giving you the news. I'm just kind of spitballing or whatever. I, I'm just kind of paraphrasing here, but that was kind of at least my... Uh, recollection of it that you know he, his argument was this is not a news program you know it's it's just fox news right here on the bottom but everyone knows this is news it's just baloney and rachel maddow did this admitted the same thing in a, in a similar lawsuit admitted that this is this is basically entertainment entertainment you know, like wwe yeah. you know it's all fake what do you think of um it'd be interesting to hear what you have to say about russiagate and what was your perspective on that what is Russiagate? I, I don't even follow too much mainstream media. What's the Russiagate? Well, Russiagate was the entire conspiracy that Hillary Clinton essentially came up with uh, that made it so that uh, Donald Trump appeared as an asset of Russia, a foreign agent. He was working with Russia to maintain diplomacy. We should have commended him for that. That's what leaders should be doing. We shouldn't be, um, you know, we shouldn't be working against and, and provoking one another we should be working together so yeah he was he was being a, a diplomat and a politician that's a, that's good that he was working with russia and yeah that's the that's what the democrats want to want to sell you you know russia yeah. this russia that proxy war this proxy war that never mind the homelessness and the student debt crisis and yada 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 we got to find an enemy you know the way 
the way the world is presented to us by the corporate media is there's good guys and bad guys. America, we have this messianic vision of spreading democracy. We're a city on a hill. Uh, American exceptionalism in Russia, they're trying to get in the way of it. In China, they're trying to get in the way of it, and they're the bad guys. I think I want a world without nation states. I want a world that people work together, solidarity, um, justice, real justice, not just, you know, uh, the stuff you read in textbooks, um, social justice, ending wealth inequality. Uh, and I want to, again, a world without nation states and standing armies. I, I'm an anarcho-syndicalist, you know, so I hope over time these these uh, powerful governments and, and, and their capabilities of carrying out violence dissolve. I want a society um, that's organized and structured around democratic, organi- organized workplaces and local communities. So that's the way I see it. I hope in the long run, probably never see it in my lifetime, but I'd like these powerful governments and their, again, their the police states and the mass incarceration and the military industrial complexes and the standing armies over time i want uh, them to dissolve um that's that's the long run because these corporations unfortunately would take over if we dissolve the government so right now we kind of need these governments in place to have standards like osha to protect us from some libertarian dystopian reality you know where corporations just uh, owned everything but again to get back to russiagate um i think trump was working as a diplomat and as a politician, I don't think Russian, certainly not the Russian people are an enemy, but yeah, I, I, I'm no fan of Putin. He's a war criminal for sure. Uh, was Russia trying to interfere with our elections? Absolutely. I didn't look into it, but I'm just assuming that was true. Does the United States try to interfere with every <laughs> election around the world? I would say probably yes. So whatever Russia was doing in our election, I'm sure we did 10 times as bad in their most recent election. Well, I guess they don't really have elections in, in Russia. Putin just says, hey, I'm president for another eight years. And if you don't like it, you're going to go in jail. Well, Russiagate was very much more than just the, what he did diplomatically. I mean, that was before he even got elected. Hillary Clinton had put together this this dossier that that proclaimed literally that Donald Trump was a Russian asset of, of Vladimir Putin's and uh, the mainstream media went wild with this, which is why people hate Russia so much today is partly because they blame Russia for Donald Trump. Yes, Russia. Yes, absolutely. They tried to interfere in our election. Did it work? No, (laughs) there's no evidence to support that. In fact, all they did was do a bunch of memes on Facebook. Yeah, that's what I heard, too. Yeah, it, it was nonsense. I don't follow that stuff. Like I, like I said, I try not to watch too much mainstream media. So uh, I, I, I get my news from Reddit and Twitter. Really, I don't. I don't really watch any of these networks. Um, you know, maybe I'm a little bit uninformed, uh, at least with stuff that's happening. Um, but yeah, I don't. I just don't want to be propagandized. And here's something I quoted on the trailer. Um, you know, the public relations industry is a billion dollar industry. And in fact, it's, uh, it's tax free. It's a tax write off. So we pay for the privilege to have our brains rotted by this crap. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, what's interesting is, do you know where the word PR came from? Public relations? Do you know where that came from? Uh, I think wasn't it called propaganda at first and maybe. Yes, yeah. that is exactly it. Propaganda. It's just a, so it's kind of ironic that press. You know, the whole I mean, it's 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 essentially public relations is just propaganda for propaganda. It's just a different yeah. way of branding it. I think Goebbels, who's in charge of uh, what was the, the, the Nazi ministry of propaganda or ministry yep. of information, whatever it was. But uh, Goebbels law of uh, propaganda is if you repeat a lie often enough, it eventually becomes truth. 
Absolutely. And you don't even need to repeat it now. All you have to do is have someone say it. You have to have Rachel Maddow say it. Uh, you know, Morning Joe, Joe Scarborough say it. <laughs> Did um, you ever see uh, Russell Brand go on Morning Joe? Uh, I mean, he said some interesting things. I don't think he's a leftist necessarily, but, uh, you know, I think sometimes he gets it right. And then all of a sudden he goes off the deep end and says something outlandish. But did you ever see that YouTube video of him going on Morning Joe? He, uh, he was hilarious. He was uh, saying just the most absurd things to Mika. Uh, I almost felt bad for her, but I don't know. It was pretty funny. He just uh, he just made a complete mockery of that show, and I don't think was, he's ever going to be allowed back on the airways of uh, NBC. Oh, probably not. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just send it to you. Uh, yeah, please, because I'd love it, to it, see it. It's just comedy. It's it's absurd. It's like ten minutes, and he's just he's just all over the place, and made uh, made the host so uncomfortable because he was just like a loose cannon. Uh, yeah, again, he gets it right sometimes. I mean, he says some stuff that I'm like, oh yeah, okay, this guy's on our side, and then all of a sudden he just goes off the deep end. Um, but the way I see it, I'm kind of I'm kind of just um, putting stuff out there from Manufacturing Consent, one of my favorite Noam Chomsky yeah. books. Uh, they, they, it's a filtering system. Um, you know, the, the media, you know, they filter content and sometimes they omit content. Sometimes they give us lies, misinformation, um, propaganda, um, and they partake in historical engineering. You know, they kind of change oh, yeah. facts around. Um, they use tone, you know, and, and certain words um, to kind of uh, facilitate, um, you know, uh, emotional responses. And then they also hand choose their experts uh, because they know what these experts are going to say. And I will kind of quote um, uh, Henry Kissinger now. I think he said something like, experts are the people who can best articulate the consensus of the powerful. So that's all the media is doing is picking out experts that – so like I, I saw this story. It was retweeted by someone, but uh, it was a story like, um, should there be a student debt strike? Um Right. Someone, someone said on there, no, absolutely not. This would be terrible. This is a bad thing, blah, blah, blah. Oh, by the way, he worked for one of the student uh, student debt, um, you know, predatory institutions. That was the expert they chose to say, is, is a student debt strike a good idea? No, of course not. And of course, he was just a, he was a corporate, uh, you know, uh, student loan shill. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what we, I mean, where do we get our information about intelligence from? Now that it used to, I mean, it used to take a lot more effort by the CIA to get something in the, on the news. Now they're the experts that are called to discuss everything. So yeah, no question about it. Hey, we we got we got to so many things here. Uh, I want to be mindful of your time. I do have a sheet of just random questions. Can we just do some rapid fire questions and we'll wrap it up here? Absolutely. All right, let's do some fun fun questions. I like to do this now. I gotta find my question sheet. Uh, I don't know if we got to any of the questions I wanted to talk about. We just kind of spitballed for uh, a long period of time there, but it was a lot of fun. Let's see, where's my questions at? You got anything to talk about? Anything to plug while I look for my questions? <laughs> Here we go. I got them. Okay. I'll All just plug right. the, the show kusaveamerica uh, dot com. It's uh, another two hour program that you can get podcast uh, wherever podcasts are played. You remember when we had our phone conversation, I said, I don't know, I'm probably going to go like 30 minutes, maybe a, an hour for a show. I know, you made me nervous <laughs> at that point, because I was like, no, but we need more. I'm going to start I'm going to start saying, I'm going to start going five hours on these shows. I feel like I don't even get to half the stuff I want to talk to you, but uh, talk about. But anyways, when will the fall of American empire occur? Will it collapse? Will it collapse? Yes, it will. Um... I mean, things can change, but yes, it will. And I would say within the next 20 years, probably within the next five years, but let's just say 20 years to 
to be to be safe. How many? Twenty. Let's okay. go with. Okay. Um, do you think revolution has to be violent, or can revolution be peaceful? I think that's a very complex question that depends upon a lot of circumstances and factors. Now, ideally, we would like to say it can be peaceful. That's what I want to. Uh, practically, at this point, I don't know. I think there's only going to be violence if uh, the ruling class chooses to fight back. We want yes. what I want is a bottom-up democratic populist uh, revolution, uh, and there will only be violence if the ruling class fight back and if they use their um, the class traders, the police, to carry out their agenda, which they usually do. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. What was your first memory? My first memory? Yeah. Jeez. Um... I have. I don't know. I've never thought of that question. Um, question. I heard it once, and I'm like, it's pretty cool. Uh, I I really don't know. I don't even know how to answer that. When was my first memory? I was at a birthday party. I can think of playing with something like a toy car or something like that. And I just remember there's like people with hats on, and it's like a special day, and it's my day. I forget. I was playing with some toy, but uh, yeah, I don't know how old I was. But that's the first memory at least I remember. Yeah, I can't even answer that. I have no idea. Um, I have a bad memory to start with. So, okay. But, um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm going to have to really think on that because I don't know. Are you dreaming right now? Well, I don't know that either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could all be just figments in someone else's dream. <laughs> be a brain in a vet. That's a very philosophical question. Um, philosopher, pal. Uh, am I dreaming right now? I, I would say not, but who knows? What do you know? What do you know for certain? What do you know deep in your bones that you're so convinced of? That I don't know anything. Oh, nice. I want to get back to the revolution. I think Josh said this uh, in your guys' little chat. Uh, Listen to uh, Pino Podcast. Plugged him a couple of times. He was fun. He's my first guest. Um, he's great. Yeah, he's a good dude. Um, Will the revolution be televised? I think he said that on the, on your or on his pod when you guys were talking. Will it be televised? It'll be propagandized on <laughs> television. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, yeah, it, it it will be, but again, it will be framed in an entirely different way, and it will depend upon who's actually, um, you know, filming it. Uh, I mean, the mainstream media will. I mean, they they'll put a narrative behind it. Um, but it'll be impossible not to, and, and unless the entire infrastructure falls and there's no television to even have. So we talked about, I don't know how long this is going, at least two hours. All the, Pretty much two hours of good news. No, yeah, it's been great. Um, with all the bad stuff out there and all the problems, what keeps you motivated? What inspires you? How do you avoid burnout? How do you keep going? Well, I often don't. I often do burnout. But I would say... Um, at the core, human nature. I think human nature will always prevail. Now, yes, human nature has got some bad sides to it, but you look at all the bad stuff out there, and then you look at these remarkable people who, you know, have no resources of their own. Oftentimes, they're just as oppressed, and they rise up, and they do something. Or people, um, you know, we used to, before COVID hit, uh, our organization charitable humans would actually go overseas and do and again we're a very small organization so these are very small trips but we would go over to like africa we went to honduras and we would work with communities we we, we were able to help build a hospital a couple of schools 
We did a lot of humanitarian efforts over there. And what just amazed me and inspires me even to this day is you meet these characters. They're impoverished. They've got nothing. They're living in mud huts, right? You know, 12, 12 people to, to, to a hut. You know, no walls, no privacy, nothing. And the human spirit is so alive in them. And the fact that these people who have absolutely nothing are willing to give everything that they have to others. There's just remarkable people in this world that are, that are rising up. And I think that is the essence of human nature. And so that's what I hold on to. Hell yeah, man. That's inspirational. Uh, are you up in Seattle? Yeah, Seattle. Is that where Bigfoot's hiding? I've only talked to him a couple times. I'm trying to get him on a podcast, but he's very hesitant. Oh, man. Yeah, if you want one of these leftist podcasts to really blow up, you bring Bigfoot on the airwaves, and all of a sudden, you're going to have a smash hit on your hands. Yes. What is God? Who is God? What's religion all about? Well, I'm an atheist, so I'm probably the wrong person to ask. But No, you're exactly the person I want to ask. What is it? Doesn't exist. Figment of our imagination is the idea of God even intelligible. I think that the idea, if you go back again as a sociologist, I always have to go back to the hunter gatherer days where there were multiple gods, but they were different kinds of gods. They were gods that were more natural and 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 um, symbolic. I would say. Um, when things started to go wrong, religion took a turn towards controlling people. Um, now, look, religion has there's a lot of great things about religion, but there's a lot of bad things about it. And uh, my, yeah, I've got a very, I, I like facts, I, I, you know, to the degree that I understand that facts are not necessarily objective um, or even rational at one point in time. But I like evidence. I like empirical evidence. I like science and religion. I, I was raised Catholic. Um, although I, I, I probably became an atheist in like middle school at Catholic school when I started asking questions and, uh, I mean, like the whole Adam and Eve thing, I was kind of confused about that. And I raised my hand and, and I'm like, wait a minute, you're saying the whole human race was populated by these two people. Uh, the answer was yes. I'm like, oh, okay. That makes no sense. So I started asking questions and it just, I, I like, no, I need, I, and so then I found science. And so I, I need empirical evidence. I need something more than just the idea of faith. This is my favorite segment of the show. I, I, I want to do a whole two hour show. This just these ridiculous questions. What is time? What is infinity? What is eternity? Is time finite? What is that stuff? Is it relative? Um, <clears throat> now you're getting into Einstein theory. Um, right. MC Square, it's my namesake. Yes. Um, I think fundamentally time is a human-made construct. That's not to say that there's not elements of time. See, this is a very tricky question because this goes into a lot of different areas. That's what I like to do here on the show. I like to keep people off guard and off, off balance or whatever. Yeah. But I think that our, the way we view time, the way in, in terms of the practicality, is a human construct that that was designed also to control. I mean, there's certainly seasons, but the let's go to a fundamental question. I had a physicist on: Is the universe 13.8 billion years old? Do you buy that? Sure, sure. 
Um, again, I, I don't think that's a finite number, I think, that, uh, or an absolute number. Um, but theoretically, I think that we've got the science to sort of to, to confirm that, to back that up. Science as it stands now, but I don't think this stuff is well, right. So, right. Um, I got a couple more here. I'm going to go with two easy ones at the end, or maybe hard ones, depends on how you look at it. Who killed JFK? I. I'm going to go with a conspiracy theorist on this one and say the CIA intelligence, the United I think States. That's the most popular response. I ask that every show so far. I like that. Yep. It's the mother of all conspiracies, I think, as it says on uh, Wiki. All right, this is a fun question. I just made this one up a couple nights ago, and I'm going to keep asking it. If you were invisible for 48 hours, what would you do? Sneak into the White House and slap the hell out of Joe Biden. Until he wakes up, probably. <laughs> uh, if I was invisible, what would I do? Um, I don't know. My favorite uh, response was, uh, "I can't tell you because that would be illegal, and I'd be, I'd, I'd be, I'd commit a lot of crimes or something like that." Is what he said. I was, I was laughing at that. That was Ron, the education doctor. <laughs> yeah, invis- I mean, invisibility sounds fun. Um, but There's a lot I- of stuff, you, a lot of schemes you could accomplish, you know? Would it be good schemes or bad schemes? That's what I was trying to think, you know? Would I use it to just acquire a bunch of wealth, or would I try to start a political revolution? What would I do? I'm not sure, but I like, I like the question. It's kind of interesting. I think I would more lean towards a political revolution of some sort, um, because that's really what we need. Um, you know, I'm of the, the theory that uh, when we all do well, we all do well, and that's the only way. Uh, you know, I mean, having an individual do well is is meaningless. Um, and 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 it's not even it's it's not even that you're that individual is doing well. It's that they think that they're doing well. I think if I was invisible for forty eight hours, you might see a couple duffel bags of money sneak out of a couple of banks. <laughs> yeah, but you'd have to make the money invisible, though. Yeah, uh, I I don't know. I think people would be. Just see some floating bags of money and be like, what the heck is going on here? And I'd make my getaway and then they'd see a car driving, but no one was driving it. And they'd just be like, what a weird day. <laughs> you know, I wonder if you're invisible, if the cops will still shoot you. Oh, man. <laughs> I wonder if, that, if that's a two, if that's a lack of power completely. That's... <laughs> what a little blow. No, I'm just kidding. No, I did a podcast on police violence, or at least brought it up for sure. All right, uh, last two questions. Maybe, hopefully, we can get some feel-good responses here. Uh, is a better world possible? <clears throat> yes. It's possible. Plausible? I don't know. Uphill but battle. It's, really it's definitely possible. Uphill battle. Last one, I love asking this question because I think we don't think about it much. What's the meaning of life? I think the meaning of life is to simply experience life itself, to experience the emotions, to experience nature. Um, I I think it's about being around other people. It's about growing as an individual. Um, And, you know, the, the, the brilliance of human life is that it is so temporal and so few of us get to live it fully. And that's kind of the crime of capitalism that takes away from that. 
awesome discussion. Promote whatever you want. The stage is yours. I got nothing more to add here. This is a this is a marathon pod, but I had a lot of fun. Anything you want, go I, ahead. I had a lot of fun. I just want to go ahead and let people know they can uh, tune into citizens.am by going to citizens.am. Um, and I also just want to promote the podcast, Kusave America, which you can find at kusaveamerica.com. Sean, it was fun, my friend. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. This Have a great, great. night. Right. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I want to thank my special guest, Sean St. Hart of Coup Save America, Citizen.am Radio, and Charitable Humans for a great discussion tonight on politics, philosophy, and society. I hope you enjoyed the show. I learned so much tonight. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.